have I got a story for you. You know when you start talking to someone and then quickly realize they are just levels on levels on levels smarter than you? Yep. Listen and learn, listeners, about all sorts of behavioral therapy philosophies. And the life of someone who graduated magna cum laude with a master's at the age of 19. But first, a word from today's sponsor, AndrePsyche.com. Yes, AndrePsyche.com is that cute, quaint corner store boutique with all sorts of neat and original things you had no idea existed hiding on the World Wide Web. Let's face it, when you travel, most people, if you're normal, <laughs> wander around their new town or city searching, hoping to find some dope-ass store with one-of-a-kind merch that makes that trip's memory tangible. AndrePsyche.com is going to be that site for you. Regardless of the places you've been or will go, we are talking about literature, clothing, paintings, prints, accessories, music, poetry, all for your perusing on AndrePsyche.com. You're going to feel better. It's, I believe the clinical term is therapeutic shopping, and you're going to love it. Why? Because each and every item has a story behind it. Nothing is just made on AndrePsyche.com. Everything is created. We are also brought to you by the Getting to Know You Pod. Please, can you do me a favor? Take a moment right now and push the subscribe button on whatever application you opened this podcast on. It could be Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, whatever. These numbers matter in our quest for sponsorship. And your support not only gives us these numbers, but also allows us to have a tangible appreciation of the hard work that goes in. I'm sorry, I'm just a numbers guy. And also, while you're at it, if you wouldn't mind, take a second, friend and follow the podcast. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Search us up. It's getting the number two. No, the letter U, pod. And finally, yes, we are looking for sponsors. If you or someone you know has a business or brand, much like Andre, and would like to expand your market on a global scale, we are currently being downloaded in 22 countries and 36 out of the 50 states of the United. <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel like that's clever, although I thought it was a really clever way to say the U.S. of A. states of United, um, but in the U.S. of A. <laughs> if you are interested in corny talks like these, just message us. Our advertising rates are extremely reasonable, so if you're looking to increase traffic to your website or the amount of purchases of your product, consider partnering with the Getting to Know You pod. And now, Getting to Know You. Hello. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you, getting to hope you. Like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely and doggone it. my cup of tea. On today's show, we are getting to know Emmy. Emmy is coming to us from the United Kingdom, although you will most likely not detect a British accent. Thanks for coming on, Emmy. I appreciate it. 
Thanks for having me, Sean. It's it's good to be here, and and I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, I was um super, and it's funny, man, because I've I think now like just been hitting up so many people through on the social media platforms that I'm I'm to the point where I forget how I connect with people. So then I'm like scheduling, hey, let's meet up on this day. Hey, let's figure out what time. And then you start like doing a little bit. I call it like internet stalking, as if I was like an ex lover that's angry and wants to see like, what's, what's this person up to now? And psychologist, an owner and founder of a company, I was like, man, you seem like you're um, way more ambitious than I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see about that. I don't have a podcast yet. So, you know, <laughs> I'm not there yet. Um, So I, I guess I wanted to, cause I get interested in psychology and for you to be a psychologist, I always screw that up with a, that, that's not the one that can assign a psychiatrist, the one that can assign mm -hmm. medicine, right? Yeah, that's, that's completely different. For, for psychiatrists, they actually do have a medical degree. So they can prescribe drugs. Um, you know, if, if you have anxiety, for example, they can prescribe anti-anxiety uh, anti -anxiety medication. Right. For a psychologist, we cannot prescribe meds. You that's just, basically it, really. Yeah, you just give out hugs, right? And make people feel <laughs> Yeah, hugs and talks. <laughs> but to be honest, I'm not that kind of psychologist either. I'm know. not a clinical psychologist. My background is in health and community psychology. And I've been a, an academic for more than 20 years. So um, my label as a psychologist is really coming from my background that I have a degree in psychology. I did my master's and my PhD in psychology, taught psychology in, in university. And, um, but, but I'm not a clinical psychologist in such that I don't ask people to lie on the couch and, and tell me about their childhood. That's, oh, you know, that's kind of different. My, my specialization is more um, in, in health and community psychology. And now I'm getting into positive psychology where I'm not really treating people with um, mental or psychological issues, but I'm engaging with people to help them to tap into their fullest potential and help them to embrace their true worth. And, and flourish in their life. So I'm that kind of psychologist, not necessarily the clinical psychologist. I've never heard of community psychology. It, 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 I, I, my mind immediately goes to more like a sociology. Is it kind of like trying to understand how communities and cultures act or am I way off on that? Oh, yeah, that, that's actually quite similar. <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, when I was doing my PhD, a lot of the mainstream psychologists were asking me, it's like, what are you doing? Where's the psychology in this? This is, this is like community work and this is sociology. Where's the psychology? And I would say, well, the way we define psychology is um, we, we, we study the way we think, the way we feel, the way we behave, and the way we interact with each other. And as community psychologists, you know, that's exactly what we do. We, we operate as individuals, but the way we think, the way we feel, interact, and, and you know, engage with, the, with each other will, will be dependent on, on our engagement with other people, with our communities, with the environment. So as community psychologists, we, we look into the circumstances, we look for ways to empower communities so you're not actually just um, targeting individuals but you're looking at a more holistic a more community perspective and for me when I was uh, working in the field I would um, 
look at the barriers to um, development. I will look at opportunities. You know, what's what's going to help people to embrace their fullest potential? What's going to help them to aspire to become better? What are the opportunities in the community? What are the barriers? And we can move forward by understanding the community as a whole. Did you, so is that like field work where you're going in or is it more like a data study and you're reading maybe um, people's stories or um, statistics? Oh, I have to say I did all sorts of stuff. <laughs> so in psychology, we had quantitative research and qualitative research. Um, quantitative research is when you look into the data, you look into the statistics. Right. And for the quantitative aspect of my work, I I actually looked at United Nations data. You know, so these are already data collected by um, uh, the United Nations. You know, I looked at um, government spending on healthcare. You know, government spending on on education and how that actually impacts on the health and well-being of communities. Uh -huh. So you can look at existing data, right. but on the other hand, because I really love to engage with people, I love community engagement and you know meeting people on the ground, going in there and seeing how they they live their experiences. I interview people. I organize uh, focus group discussions. And, and to be honest, I don't even call them focus group discussions. I I call them as like meetings. You know? <laughs> we have like community engagement events and I've used all sorts of methods um, to generate insights um, from, from the community members. So um, there's one method that I uh, used. It's called photo voice. So what I would do is I would uh, give uh, members of the community cameras and at the time when i was doing my phd we would have disposable cameras because oh, nice. <laughs> we didn't have um we didn't have smartphones um, right. at that time that, that's actually going to reflect uh some of my age <laughs> you know i'm i'm not very young anymore so at that time we didn't have smartphones so people didn't really have um you know they couldn't take selfies the way we are taking yeah. selfies Ma now so we were we were giving away um, we were giving away disposable cameras and asking community members to take photographs of, of their day-to-day -day experiences. Oh, and so when cool. we what a yes, cool and idea. when we come together and talk about the photos, there are certain things that I would never have asked them uh, because it's you know it's something that I haven't experienced myself. You know, they right. will take photographs of of uh, things that are important to them. And I would never uh, would have asked them questions if they haven't taken those photos. So one of the techniques um, that I use to collect data, yeah, we call them photo voice. Um, Dude, that's so neat. Uh, I just like, I hadn't thought about that, but what a great way to val or to find out what's important to people by having them just have that freedom to then bring an image to you. And then it, it's gotta be so interesting to like, even think about your own reaction. like that's a big deal to you or, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't think that was a big deal oh, to you. Yeah, you know, absolutely. like th even yeah. on that well, level. One of the, one of the projects that I did um, here in the UK is I, I tried to explore the experiences of South Asian men with diabetes. So it's a very specific. I was going to say, um, good community. grief. <laughs> uh, yeah. Because, uh, because they have a higher prevalence of uh, type two diabetes here in the UK. Um, the council asked us, you know, they commissioned us 
to to run that project and explore um, their experiences of how they manage diabetes, you know, what's important to them. And so that when we design programs to help them to live more healthily, you know, to have a healthier diet, healthier lifestyle, to help them to cope with their with their diabetes, we are taking it from their perspective rather than assuming that what we know is um, important to them. So we gave them the cameras and they were taking photographs of their children. They were taking photographs of their cars. Because um, um, what I've noticed here, uh, particularly I I'm based in Stoke-on-Trent, um, so many of the participants that we had were um, taxi drivers. You know, they were cab drivers. Oh, man. So, so they're just sitting them, all day. Lack yeah, of exercise. It was very difficult for them to move um, because they're, yeah, they're seated all day. So they would say things like, okay, I will have my 12-hour shift. Wow. You know, by the end of that shift, I'm just exhausted. You haven't got time to to go to the gym and exercise. Yeah. They will take a photograph of their treadmill at home and it's really just With a- clothes a, all a, over it. <laughs> yeah, just clothes. You know, nobody's actually using it. You know, they, they use it as like a hanger or something. Exactly. So it dries towels off out of the bathroom. <laughs> exactly, exactly that. So, you know, they were taking photographs of, of, of yeah, of their children. They, they would say things like, uh, I am concerned that um, my children will have- uh, uh, the same condition. So, you know, we try to feed them um, as healthily as possible, but with their, with their work, you know, it's, you know, yeah. as, as taxi drivers. So, so for many of them, it's quite difficult um, to live a, a healthy lifestyle. So, and they probably the, eat such crappy food as well. Well, right? what I've noticed is that they have a, a particular ingredient called ghee. Or something like that, but it was really fatty, and um, but it's part of their culture. So you you actually do need to find ways to um, encourage them to have more um, to have healthier alternatives. Um, and and what of, one of the recommendations that we took away from that project, recognizing that actually the men, even if they are the ones who have type two diabetes, they are not the ones who are preparing the food. For the family, oh, it's insight. usually the women who are in control of the kitchen. They are the ones who need to know how to cook healthily. Right. So when it comes to encouraging um, that particular group to live healthier, you know, to eat more healthily, you have to connect with the ones who are making the food, who are preparing right. the food. And so it, it turned out to be a, you know, a, a cooking engagement program um, with the women because they are the ones who are preparing the food um, for the family. So photo voice, I absolutely love it. Um, when you take the photographs, um, well, when your participants take the photographs and talk about the photographs, they will um, tell you their stories. You know, they come alive when, when they talk about their stories. Right. And at the end of the project, what we usually do is we organize a photo exhibition, for example, so they can actually show um, stakeholders and policymakers what are the barriers. You know, they raise awareness about the issues that they face. So I've seen um, so many of my students because I also supervised a lot of, you know, psychology students as a lecturer and, you know, I, I supervised undergrads, uh, you know, master students, PhD students, and I, I, I asked them to, um, to, 
to facilitate photo voice and they will facilitate photo voice with you know people with learning disabilities for example or are or for people who are in care homes um migrant nurses and, and and you know they they will organize all these um exhibitions you know all these uh photo voice exhibitions and and all of the insights that you get from the community it's just so rich and it's it's a wonderful method it's one of my favorite um, community engagement methods that I've used um, during my time in academia. Yeah. And when you said stakeholders, I was like that. Um, it, it's so important. I would, um, if I, if I had to generalize, I would say it's so important to get stakeholders for funding and for influencing policy to not just hear, but to also see because images Absolutely. can just burn into your mind sometimes and really hammer home a point. You can put together themes visually a lot easier i feel so when these people are making decisions that that just sounds so powerful i've i've never heard of it and it's it it almost also seems like something that would just be cool if you were walking around somewhere or if you heard like hey there's a photo voice ex, ex, exhibit today for south asian men and their struggles with diabetes <laughs> come on in and learn about it like i'd go I'd be like, man, that, yeah, that's, that just sounds like a fun time. Like, well, what that is going on? And, and you can actually see, you know, these are photographs that they've taken, um, you know, to, to share um, to, to share their lived experiences. And one of the reasons why I also love um, photo voice is because as a researcher, you don't really want to assume um, the questions to ask, you know, you when when you when you come up with your own questions, sometimes you're missing the point. Sometimes you're missing, uh, you know, things that are relevant to them. Whereas mm. with the photo voice, the the themes and the questions and the stories are actually being driven um, by the participants themselves because they are the ones carrying the camera, right. and the talking point will be based around the photos that they've taken. So, it's particularly useful for. Um, communities for example whose uh, first language is not english uh, for oh, example man, yeah. so you don't have that um language barrier for um people who are a little bit shy or maybe even for yeah we, we've used this a lot for communities um you know for people with learning disabilities for example they are able to to share their voice um through photos without having to struggle with the you know you know how to navigate the linguistics and so on. they're yeah. able to share their perspective through the photographs well it, it opens up um so a lot of people will be reserved in speaking especially if they feel like they don't speak well but the photographs eliminate that like like you had just said it it's um it, it to me I, and i'm just again i never considered this as a method to research and get to know about people's cultures like empowering them in this way but it just would be freeing Right. Like yeah, you don't have to worry absolutely. about the communication issues. It's like, here it is. This is the image. And then you get to ask the questions and find out. And it's got to be comforting for them, too. And just have a moment. Man, that's that's such a is that like a like, did you invent that technique? Can, can no, I also say no, you are the creator? Actually, um, <laughs> this, this has been a method um, that's been around in the community community development field since the 1970s. So it's been around. Oh, wow. And there are um, different ways to, to run photo voice. And one of the, one of the other um, community engagement uh, methods that I use is called the World Cafe. They can also bring their photographs with them. You know, that's absolutely fine. But the World Cafe really is when you instead of organizing just a focus group discussion because sometimes a focus group discussion it feels so organized <laughs> you know it feels so formal that some people 
don't feel comfortable uh, engaging in in um, conversations in 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 uh, focus group discussions. Right. Whereas with um with the World Cafe, yes, you can bring your photographs with you. You can bring whatever you like. But the the concept of the World Cafe is you organize the the community center or the the meeting space like a cafe and you bring in you bring in your participants sometimes uh, if i can give you an example when i was doing research in in london we were organizing world cafes in some of the most um, deprived areas in London, and we'll, we will stop people on the street and, and, and tell them, come, you know, come in, we've got free food, you know, and, and free conversation, you know, people just come and go, and you organize the you organize the community center like a cafe. They grab their food, they talk, you know, they chat, they move around the tables, right. they they um they write their their notes on the on the tape uh tablecloths and you just engage in conversations and the amount of data, you know, the amount of stories that you will get from from a method like that um, is just absolutely fantastic. Oh, For us food. researchers, yeah. you know, it, it could be a bit of a data overwhelm because sometimes you generate so much in one session, but you see with, with community engagement and particularly with participatory methods like photo voice and and the world cafe you're bringing in community perspectives without really having an assumption from the researcher and the wealth of of stories and information that you will get from the community is absolutely fantastic and when you know what to do with those insights you can inform programs and strategies and policies yeah. that actually come from the grassroots you know that actually come from the insights of the community rather than coming from top down you know thinking that you know better than everyone else right. and imposing such policies on the people and it, it in my head too i'm thinking like and when it's less formal people are so much more maybe genuine compared to if they are on a stage maybe they'd be reserved and feel like they have to give the quote unquote right answer or almost like the expected type of answer yeah that's right you can see in the Again, the World Cafe is another method that I use. Uh, I used, you know, we, we call it, I use past tense now because I, I left academia two years ago. But when it comes to the World Cafe um, and, and Photo Voice, you know, the, they are participatory methods. You engage with, with community members. They are more relaxed. They feel as if they are not really, they're not being interrogated. Yeah, right. You know, they are just there for a chat and, and they enjoy the atmosphere. And when you set it up like a cafe, you know like there's a party you know there's no um there are no formal rules you just mingle you go around you you have uh casual conversations while while refilling your your cup you know to, to yeah. have a drink and, and so on so people are actually more free to express what they have to say and yeah the amount of information you know the amount of insights that you will get from participatory methods is absolutely fantastic and are these like the the funding for this is this a government funding is this university research like grant study kind of a stuff yeah, it, it actually depends. Um, if I can just share, when I did my PhD, I I I was funded partly by Oxfam. So that's a that's a UK charity, um, and they funded our project with the indigenous community in the Philippines. So we were working um 
we were working towards developing an alternative learning system to help indigenous communities in the Philippines to learn how to read, write, and count. So this is funded by, by charities uh, and non-governmental organizations and so on. For my projects here in the UK, I had a mix of funders. So I had uh, private funders, I had university funding, I had funding from the government, from charities. So funding can come from everywhere. And, and there are some projects that don't even need funding. Um, you can just do your research, you know, as long as you have university approval, right. you know, you can, you can apply for ethical approval and, and, and do the project. And most of my, um, students you know the, the students that i supervise they will do their own um projects on, under my supervision that doesn't really have formal funding if you like it's just part of their project and they they generate insights analyze the data and then write it up wow okay yeah because i've always wondered about studies like that in research and like how much of a pain in the butt it is because <laughs> when you when you mentioned like four or five different funding sources i'm like how do you organize it? How long does the paperwork take, right? Mm -hmm. How many people have to say yes and get on board with the idea of it? Mm -hmm. Or if it's like top down from the government, almost like what you had said about the um, South Asian men and diabetes. It's like, mm -hmm. hey, we're noticing this. Here's whatever amount of money. Figure something out. Yeah, that's that's probably one of my unique selling points, if you like, when I used to pitch my my proposals. <laughs> um, I, I, I got funding from from the council because I pitched it in such a way that we are starting from scratch. You know, we we, we will assume that we we don't know anything, although we do know some things, you know, because there's already existing research around, you know, diabetes. We know the statistics. We know um, how many South Asian um you know, the, the prevalence of um, diabetes uh, among South Asian population, we have existing data around that. But the way I pitch it is I use participatory methods um, that will uh, un uncover interesting, you know, new insights about the lived experiences of, of the communities. But I have to say, Sean, you know, one of the reasons why I left academia is because of these restrictions in funding and for researchers oh. like me who do community engagement work um, since, shall I say, since 2008, <laughs> we've had the change of government here. It became more difficult um, for community engagement researchers uh, like myself to get funding um, because we've got cuts, you know, we've got budget cuts, you know, when it comes to um, community development and health promotion work because they have other priorities and, you know, other agenda um, from the government. So I have to say at the start of my career, it was it was okay you know i was getting funding from charities i was getting funding from the government it was relatively easy because um the the government that we had at that time um would be you know they have concern for the community you know they actually do understand the importance of of community engagement and community development but since we had the change of government around 2008 2009 then it became more difficult for community engagement projects um to flourish and 
for me, I left academia um, simply because I know that I will make a, a, a bigger impact outside the four walls of academia. Academia can be so restraining. As you've said, so much paperwork. The amount of time yeah. that we have to spend to get ethical approval, you know, the amount of time that we have to spend to, um, to get funding and to even um, use the funding that you already have, the amount yeah. of paperwork and then account that we have for it to- on that on the back end too like saving receipts and submitting that stuff as well is where my head goes and i'm like what a freaking waste of time if you're just trying to get data <laughs> i know well the thing i i can understand why because they they yeah. will have to see that you're not right. stealing them no, and, yeah. you know that there has to be an accountability however right. what frustrated me is that we will get the money for example from the council right we will let's say be allocated fifty thousand pounds um to do this community uh engagement work and and to understand and um, the experiences of, of the community. That amount of money, most of it, will actually go and, and pay for the overheads of the university. Uh, so instead of him going to uh, you know get spent, you know, getting getting it spent in the community to actually use the money for for projects to, to promote the health and well-being of the community, the money is being funneled into the university, into the pockets of the vice chancellors. Sorry, now I'm getting so angry. No, well, and you, you, you <laughs> yeah, promised no, we, me if you got angry, you would curse yeah, a lot. Well, so I'm waiting yeah, for you to I curse. Know, <laughs> I'm, I'm worried that my parents might be listening to this and nobody's used to me cursing, but you can actually <laughs> sense that I'm really angry about this because instead of the money being spent on the community it's being funneled into the university and it's not even going to the lecturers you know it's not even going to the to the staff who are running the the projects you know it's going to the overheads it's going into the yeah as i've said to the salaries of the vice chancellors yeah. you know cutting down you know we've, we've had major issues um in the higher education here in the uk you've you've heard a lot of um strikes you know a protest over the past couple of years you know just before i left academia academia and one of the reasons why i left academia is because uh, our pensions you know our pensions are at risk you know thinking about when by the time we retire we're going to retire with just $13,000 uh, $13,000 pounds uh, you know per year when we retire i mean how on earth are you going to survive you know with that kind of money in you know by the time we retire so yeah it's you know there's there's Can- some injustice going on um in the higher education sector at the moment and you know as far as us bringing in money for projects, you know, particularly when it is like community, you know, community development projects, it breaks my heart to actually funnel, you know, you know, we spend so much time and energy um, and getting money from, from councils and, you know, getting money from charities, you know, which should be spent, you know, to the community, you know, to the community project, only to be funneled in, into the into the institutions that and that already have, um, you know, who's already amassing uh, a lot of money. So well, that's something... I'm not happy bunny, <laughs> so no, I, I left. I I think, and I've heard that about um just college costs over here in the states. That the reason, whatever, it's forty thousand dollars a year, is not because the professors are making so much money. But it's the administrators who are not directly connected. The people that you will literally never see as a student are – it's a bloated system. 
That's right. So that's I, right. So I there's, to, I mean, it's just a little bit messed up. So I, I didn't I, really, but, as what, much as I love research, I love research. I love teaching. I love community engagement, but because of the nature of higher education, uh, particularly here in the UK, I'm not so sure about what's going on um, in other countries, but here it's, it's not, no, it's not something that I want to be part of. So I left, and I know that I could make a bigger impact by by stepping out of out of the out of that institution. And to be perfectly honest with you, since I left, you know, I've it's an eye opener. There's so many more things that I can learn and I can contribute to this world by by stepping out of the four walls of of the classroom. Can I? And I wanted to ask a little more about the um the university administrators because I've never been there and I don't know if you have seen this or even if I'm thinking about this the right way, but say again, we'll go with 50,000 pounds. When you apply for that, isn't it already said or like itemized how the money would, would be spent? So I guess I'm yes. curious as to what do they just put like 25,000 for university costs and then they're just pulling that into their salaries? How do they justify that? Yeah, what happens there is um, you you allocate uh, you allocate a budget. You know, you have an itemized budget, so you have the expenses. You know, you have the um, equipment, for example. You have the the time for the staff, but the time for the staff um, it. it what is we have the term called full economic costing so it's not really just the time of the researcher or the lecturer you actually add a little bit more to cover the overheads of the university so a huge chunk is actually going into the the overheads to to run the university rather than on the project itself okay. does that make sense yeah it does. and but who's determining that um it's a proportion of your itemized um, expenses. Oh, so it's just like a set. Hey, whatever you get, we're gonna get twenty percent of it. Yeah, oh, that's right. Man. So, so it's a yeah. So there are there are some research councils that will cover those full economic costs, and there are those that that do not. So that's why uh, you know some of your funding will actually be used up to cover those costs. Um, a lot of the research councils, yeah, will will cover that. So you know they are they are supporting research in the universities and will cover full economic costing. But there are other funders, for example, with charities and uh, and councils, they don't um, cover that. And yeah, that eats up uh, a chunk of your budget. Yeah, right. God, so sneaky. So, 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 sneaky. so and for me, I, 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 as I've said, you know, as much as I, I do, I love engaging with students. You know, the, the teaching, the, the research. You know, engaging with the community, writing it up, and, and being able to influence, for example, policy based on data that you collect. So it's yeah. not just opinion. You're actually yeah. generating an, an evidence base to, to inform decisions. I love that part of research but what made me frustrated was there's a lot of um, bureaucracy a lot of yeah you have to fill in a lot of papers to fart you know you can't <laughs> you bring in you bring in some money you can't even touch it you know without having to complete all those forms 
and 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 what really disturbed me is the way the the money is being spent that you're taking money from charities you're taking money from um government um institutions you know yeah meant to help people that, that that you will be spending it in the community and in the end you're actually spending it to to pay for the over overheads of your of your institution yeah. and i think that's that's actually not on to redo your office or to buy a three thousand dollar pen you know <laughs> Like yeah, stuff like it. that, the mahogany desk, it. or to go to brunch with someone, and whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always it's it, it's always been super and I, interesting. Interesting is the wrong word. I've always found it really fucked up how so many people high up get to kind of skim, and it's almost like a weird pyramid scheme to me, where that like because you're in the position, you just get to get this money. I don't get it. Like, what are you actually doing for the results of the work? How are you helping this work? It um, um I'm not really sure. I, I'm I'm assuming that they, they could justify that by saying that they have more responsibility, that <laughs> if something goes wrong at an institutional level, that they are the ones um who will you Being know their their heads will roll. But yeah. that's actually not really the case from what I've seen um from experience. It's usually the frontliners who are actually going to to take the beating if, yeah. if something goes wrong. And oh, yeah. maybe they would say, oh you know, because we have years of experience, we've earned this and so on. But again, I'm okay, I, I'm going to to apologize for for saying this, but there are some, you know, this there's there's a lot of discrimination in institutional forms of racism um in institutions like this. So you can actually see um the inequalities in terms of who's actually getting those seats at the top and who's, you know, who's actually going on the front line. So there are some injustices and and inequalities at at an institutional level. And I'm afraid higher education is, is not an exception to this. Yeah. No, I, um, especially right now here at the state, it's, um, with the George Floyd protests, um, there's a huge, there's a lot of introspection on how systems are set up and how I believe it'll get to the point where hiring practices will really be thought about and um, proportional representation based on population demographics um, will be strongly considered. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's not just about, you know, getting the job, you know, to, to 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 be inside the institution. You have to look at the progression as well. You know, one of the one of the research that I've done when I was uh, still in academia, I looked into the experiences of migrant nurses here in the UK, and I n- never really intended to study racism or, you know, uh, institutional racism or racial microaggression, but as you know, my my approach is participatory you know the the reason the the participants are leading and directing the you know how the research goes my original intention was oh you know how did you cope with the weather how are you (laughs) how are you dealing with homesickness you know that's what i actually wanted to explore but when i started talking to them you know they started talking about racial microaggression you know i was quite surprised uh, you know when they talked about patients asking for for white nurses when they are already there um to to give them what what they need you know they would talk about opportunities for training that are being taken away from them, you know, opportunities for promotion. They will see people that they train getting promoted before them. And it's just, you know, all these progression in their career, they can see it happening and they question 
well, what's going on here? Right. You know, is, is there anything that I've done wrong? And for me, when I did that research, I I couldn't believe it. And and be, maybe because I was naive and I was blind at that time, I I didn't really see. You know, I, I wasn't really sure how how could this happen in this day and age? You know, in in an organization like in healthcare, you would think that people are more educated that you know this kinds of um you know uh, behavior doesn't exist anymore. But unfortunately, you know, five years down the line. I actually experienced institutional forms of racism myself, and it's almost yeah. like, oh my goodness, I, was, I wrote yeah. about this five years ago. I couldn't believe that people were telling me this until it hit me in the face and I experienced it myself. So it's just, it's just, um, yeah, it, it's quite sad that, um, you know, it still exists. And for some people who deny it, that's actually even more painful for us to deny that yeah. our experiences don't exist because I'm sorry to say it still does. No, And that's the huge shift. And people might say like you're becoming woke or whatever to it. But I think like the, the um, acknowledgement of like white privilege over here and people realizing like there are some inherent advantages that you have not earned through any sort of, um, any sort of effort on your own. It's not skills-based. It's not a meritocratic way of being ahead. It's just because of your color that you're ahead. And, yeah. and that's, um, that's definitely coming out here um, in America. But so, and I don't know if, um, I can't remember if we said this or not, but because we did say it before we start, I started recording, you are from the Philippines and, I am. and you went to the United Kingdom. So uh, when you were talking about institutional, um, discriminations and microaggressions. I was like, I, I was like, how, how are you so blind to it if you're from the Philippines? And then it's, I'm so glad you said, and then I experienced it. I was like, mm. what? I, I was waiting for it. Oh, that's a to, clunky... to be honest with you, because when I when I first came to the UK, coming from the Philippines, we don't really talk a lot about race over uh... there because it's it's not very common to talk about racism in the Philippines. You know, it's not something that um, we experience on a day to day basis because there were mainly Filipinos. I was going to say, just just Filipinos not that in the Philippines, but for me to come here in the UK and to be a, a minority, an ethnic minority. In the first couple of years, I have to say that I've been um, I've been fortunate that I was nurtured um, and, and supported by people who were welcoming. You know, I didn't really get the sense of racism. I was sort of sheltered. <laughs> I have to say, for the oh. first couple of years here in the UK, that you know, my supervisors, my my um, you know, my PhD colleagues at that time, you know, we were so diverse. You know, we were. Um, I did my PhD in London and, you know, the, the people that I interacted with in London, they are the most welcoming, so supportive, you know, embraces diversity. So for me, when I was in London, I didn't really um, get the sense that racism exists until I moved here where I am here now. And, and you know, that's where where um, the experiences started to creep. It didn't happen immediately. I, I have to say that I was blind again, you know, for the first couple of years, but eventually I only noticed it when I'm, I was actually in it too deep. <laughs> when I was practically losing, well, literally losing my mind um, at that time because I was questioning, it's like, what did I do wrong, you know, for... For, you know, I've, I've done everything that I could. I, you know, I excelled, you know, I was getting praises, you know, from external 
from external um, examiners, for example, you know, I, I've been bringing in so much money. I've been bringing in grants. You know, we've been talking about research. I've been leading research projects. I'm on the editorial board of journals. I've written textbooks, you know, research papers and so on, being invited at conferences. So I was actually excelling and, and doing so well in my career. But by the time that I applied for promotion or asking for more leadership roles, they were being denied. Wow. And I have no, I have no, um, I couldn't, I couldn't make sense. Why? You know, is it because, um, is it because I'm not qualified? No, that can't be right. It's, it's you know, probably because, because, because you're too intelligent and have way too much energy and work ethic. <laughs> so it, you know i just couldn't get my head around it and i did spiral into depression and oh, you know i was being given tasks that um that would be given to phd students you know what i mean i am i am a lecturer and and i was i was being given tasks that would be suitable for phd students and i felt that you know it was quite degrading and it i yeah, I just spiraled into depression. I was so exhausted, you know, just trying to make sense of things. And yeah, I, I had a, a mental breakdown um, at that point. And this is actually quite common. Again, you know, looking into my research with racial microaggression, you know, these are not blatant forms like, you know, no one is going to call you the N-word or no one is going to, um, you know, uh, bully you um, blatantly for your race. Right. But racial microaggression are just these, you know, everyday uh, little tiny um, racist acts or actually they are just so subtle that you don't even notice it. And, and because they are so subtle, it sometimes becomes so ingrained in the culture that if this is just how things are, um, yeah, it can lead that, to that a you sense don't that you even just notice it. it. And, and you couldn't even complain about it because you, you, there's, you know that there's some, that something's not quite right, but you can't just put your finger on it. It's right. like you couldn't, you couldn't pinpoint like, um, I know something's not right, but I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just me. And you question, you, you, you question your worth, you question your judgment. And it's just so exhausting to, um, you know, to have to have to uh, make sense of it on a daily basis. So, yeah, it's, it's very common for, for those who experience racial microaggression to experience depression, anxiety. Some would even have suicidal tendencies because they are so tiny, but they accumulate without you even noticing that it's taking a toll on your health yeah. and well-being. It's like a fucking toxic buildup. That's know? it. That's absolutely that. And for me, it took me five years, um, you know, to, to notice that I'm in this sludge of, um, of toxic, you know, uh, that I'm in this toxic environment and it's, it's, uh, it's killing me, um, you know, professionally, you know, psychologically, you know, my well-being was just an absolute mess. When, and when, yeah, it took a bit of time before, you know, for me to realize that it was time to, it was time to move on. So when you had said that you had a mental breakdown, does that come in the form of, I, I guess, what was that for you? Just the depression or was it actually like you, um, burnt your supervisor's car, you blew something up? <laughs> well, I, well, 
I, I'm not. I, I wouldn't risk my reputation in that way. I, I, I did have separate, <laughs> several episodes. Um, I have to say that, yeah, since I came here in the UK, I did experience a seasonal affective disorder um, because coming originally from the Philippines, I'm used to being in the sun right. <laughs> all the time. We had sunshine all the time. But here in the UK, it's just so gloomy. And, you know, especially the winter months, um, it's really difficult. But for me, when I... Um, when I experienced my mental breakdown, it was shortly after I returned from maternity leave. Oh, so you man. can you can um, expect all sorts of things going on um, at the same time. You could say that I'm hormonal. You <laughs> could say that I'm exhausted. Um, but at the same time, I just wasn't given the opportunity to um to to transition if you know what i mean from yeah. from coming back from maternity leave and just gradually return to work i was actually dumped uh too much workload that not even the normal you know workload would um you know not that you know if even if you are just on your normal workload it's not normal at right. all so i was just dumped i i was uh exhausted at that time I was having an identity crisis as well, you know, just trying to figure out, am I a mom? Am I, am I a, a, a career woman? Is it, right. you know, how do I balance this? So just trying to make sense of that. But at the same time, when you are being given um, duties that doesn't really fit the remit of your, of your job description, yeah, right. you know, it's, it's almost like um, I am, I am a, I met, let's say I, I work at a restaurant and I'm a chef and I'm asked to clean the toilets. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's not, you know, it's not something that I'm being paid to do. But when you are being devalued and downgraded for whatever reason that they might have without without having a consultation with you, you know, maybe they would say, ah, you know, we're giving you easier tasks because we want to help you to, to adjust. But for me, not having that consultation, you know, not have, you know, just being yeah, just given, given. Um, just like that, not having the the autonomy, not having the the freedom to choose it, it is actually quite um demotivating so i i literally um lost my mind i i went into depression i had suicidal tendencies at that time and there was a point when i had a proper meltdown in class <laughs> <laughs> you have to say you know in front of you know 50 shocked students um because if you if you meet me in person you will you will see that I'm a very happy, smiley, you know, um, jolly person. You know, people would say, you know, every time I see you, um, you look like you have no worries, you know, no cares in the world. You you just look so happy all the time. Yeah, I don't have so, to meet you to feel that. I I got that the first ten seconds I was talking to you. It it comes it comes across <laughs> in your voice as well. <laughs> you don't, don't need to well, see you to get is, that this vibe. Is me now you know, I, I I'm still as as you can as as you can tell, I'm still healing. I'm still I still have a a sense of bitterness. You know, you you can sense that from from the way I tell my it's story. It's a pretty I'm, sweet I'm bitterness. Healing, it is definitely but, a sweet bitterness. <laughs> yeah, but you know, at, at least nicely. I at least I have the cheerfulness back. But. Yeah. When I had my breakdown um, in front of my students, um, essentially, 
um, at the start of the semester, I told them, look, um, we have 12 weeks together. Um, you know, I, I already gave you uh, what your coursework will be. You're going to submit it at the end of the semester, you know, just after the Christmas break. So this is um, this is during the autumn term, right? So we start in we start in September, we finish in January. They have to submit a coursework in January. So from week one, I tell them, look, this is your assignment. You know, you have you you can ask me everything you want to ask about your coursework during the time that we are together for the twelve weeks. Because come come the Christmas break, and when we when we stop for the Christmas break, I'm not going to answer any emails. I'm going to shut off my email <laughs> because it's time. You know, it's holidays. Yeah. You know, it's it's the time for my family. It's it's you know, it's a time for me to. To, to switch off and, and enjoy being a mom, right? Yeah, for sure. So I, I gave them that opportunity 12 weeks, every single week. Oh, are there any questions? Or how are you getting on with your work? How is it going? And come week 12, there is this one student I asked, okay, are there any questions? And one student raised her hand and she said, I don't have a question. I just have a complaint. Yeah. I think it is unfair that you are going to um, shut off your email and, and not answer our questions. We are submitting in January. What if we still have questions before, you know, before the submission date? And I just absolutely lost it. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I told her, it's like, I think you are forgetting that we are human. I think you are forgetting that um, this is a job. For us, this is not our entire life. And it is not my fault that you haven't, you know, started your, your coursework. You know, we started in week one. What were you doing from week one to week 12? Your peers are ready to submit. You know, they, they are ready to submit even before, you know, even before we finished our break. You know, they have no more questions. They're just going to spend the holidays to actually have fun, right. you know, to, to celebrate the holidays with their families. You know, they, they might do a little bit of tweaking, a little bit of refining, but they're pretty much done. So what on earth are you doing for the past 12 weeks and have the, you know, have the, the balls to, to tell yeah. me to, you know, that I'm being unfair for not, you know, for turning off my my emails during the holidays. So, you know, I was just, you know, I, I nearly cried. I turned red. I just, and, and my students were just absolutely shocked. And I have to say that it was just one student. All the other students, um, they actually, some of them stood up and, and, and told the, told that students it's like this is not fair that that you are asking your lecturers um to to answer emails you know they they have they have families too you know right. we, we have our lives outside of this job so the other students apologized for that student so <laughs> there, if, if there's any consolation from that experience you know it was just one student who was a bit off but majority of the students were apologetic you know they were apologizing on behalf of that student but they were just absolutely shocked to see me have a, a meltdown in front of class because yeah if you know me you know personally you will find that you know I'm like a care bear you know <laughs> I'm just a really happy smiley person and it was their first time um for them to see me um really get angry um, at that point because yeah I, I just completely lost it because that I, I found that that was just unacceptable it's just stepping out of the boundaries really yeah and if you've been feeling disrespected by your superiors and overlooked by your superiors and now here comes this little punk wanting to like whatever like like almost take possession of your time that they haven't earned 
like yeah you're right like where do you get the balls fuck off <laughs> you know <laughs> Yeah, I I didn't swear. I have to say, um, because yeah, it's it's not. I I'm just yeah. I sometimes I slip. You know, I I got it from my husband. My husband's Greek, by the way. Oh wow! (laughs) So he's used to swearing. He's really um vocal, and you know, sometimes I, I I pick up his mannerisms, but. Um, for me, coming from the Philippines and the way I was raised, I I feel quite uncomfortable with swearing. I didn't swear at that time, but I I just felt absolutely exhausted yeah. after that, and I, I was I was just questioning my value. I'm just questioning um, if if it is all worth it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I did spiral into a depression and you know having suicidal tendencies at that time as well. And it it just wasn't a, a very nice time. You know, I wasn't Man. being the best uh, mother to my son. I wasn't being the best wife um, to my husband. And I wasn't being the best um, teacher to my students either because I was, yeah, I was losing my my cool, if you right. like. And, you know, it, it's not something that, uh, you know, I, I really didn't want to present myself in that way. But it was, it was quite a, it was a rough two to three years before I, I actually started um, going through my through my recovery. And the time that I made my recovery was when I made a conscious decision to actually leave. Yeah, I well, you almost have to remove yourself from the situation at that point, because if it's if it's if it's becoming almost like mentally abusive, it would be like staying with a partner that is domestically violent towards you. Right? That's like it's right. Just unhealthy yeah, on a, on making a... that conscious decision um, yeah. did help me, and I didn't leave immediately. I did have an exit strategy, um, and yeah, that took a while. Does that um, involve blowing up the car? Because I swear <laughs> I know that you blew up a car. You you blew something up on your way out to wreck to wreck the system. I swear I heard that somewhere. <laughs> to blow up the car. No. <laughs> someone's someone's well. Audi. No. <laughs> yeah, it, it hasn't even crossed my I, I wouldn't resort to to violence yeah, I, yeah. I I wouldn't say um and and I I suppose I have to say Sean that at that time um I've I've always tried to work with communities you know from from the start of our conversation I've always been involved in community yeah. engagement in community development I've always worked with marginalized communities and and people you know people in communities who are deprived and, and those who are who, who who will need empowerment but when it came to my personal um circumstance i i couldn't fight you know i couldn't really have the power um and for me i i was just absolutely exhausted and to go through that experience myself it it gave me a, a different perspective um you know for those people who are in you know, in difficult circumstances, yeah. when people say, "Why don't you help yourself?" or "Why don't you fight?" Right. or "Why don't you? Why don't you protect yourself?" It's because you don't have the power. You don't have yeah. the. You don't have the energy to yeah. fight, or you don't even. You're not even aware that you're being abused. You know, for me, you know, it. I. It. it it's been like five years of you know uh, neglecting that I'm. I'm not being treated equally. I, I I wasn't even aware of that. I wasn't even conscious that there are things that I'm being um you know that I'm being put in in a in a difficult position. Sometimes you just don't see it, and when you are down, it's it's quite hard to fight. And and from hindsight, you know my my husband will tell me, oh you know why didn't you complain? Why didn't you fight? You know you're always quite ballsy. You know you fight for justice. You fight right. for you know all sorts of things. And and I told him look. 
if you were in my position, when your mind is just clouded, when you're just absolutely exhausted, you just take it. You know, you 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 actually question your worth when your self worth is actually in tatters. You wouldn't have the you know you wouldn't have the power. You wouldn't have the confidence to actually fight. And for those people who might be in that position for a very long time, you know, they might have learned that this is just how it is. Yeah, this is life. And yeah, they just take it and and not realize that you know there is another way, there is a way out. You know, you can actually do something about it. And come to think of it, you know, one of the pioneers of um, positive psychology, you know, Martin Seligman, back in the seventies, he did research around learned helplessness, and he, you know, he 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 did this this experiment with dogs, you know, <laughs> this unfortunate thing with dogs. You know, he was electrocuting dogs, oh. and he. He would electrocute dogs, you know, he put wait, them in a wait, cage. You're, you're not allowed to do that anymore? No, <laughs> <laughs> so with the animal rights movement, you're not, you're not allowed to do that anymore. But those experiments that, that he did um, in the 70s, you know, he would be electrocuting dogs in a cage. And no matter what the dog did, they couldn't actually get out. So the dog eventually learned that there's nothing that they can do. They, they will get shocked anyway. There's no point to fight. Mm. There's no point to... To do anything because regardless of what you do you'll be electrocuted so when when he opened the gate and the dogs can actually leave the cage if they want to the dogs didn't do anything because they learned that yeah no matter what i do i'm just gonna be you know i'm just gonna be in this position anyway even if there is a clear way out so there are people in circumstances where they've been in these difficult situations yeah. for such a long time that no matter what they did, um, you know, it didn't really get them anywhere. So eventually, you'll just learn to accept your faith. You learn to be helpless. And for me to to experience, um, you know, being devalued and, and to, to lose my sense of self-worth, you know, when people ask me, why didn't you complain? Why didn't you fight? Why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you do anything? That's exactly that because I just didn't feel that I had the power. And to, frankly, I just didn't even notice that I was being mistreated. So, yeah, so yeah. now I, I have a, a different perspective, you know, when it comes to, to injustice, when it comes to people being abused and people who feel powerless, when you tell them, why don't you do anything about it? It's clear you, you, you need to get a job. Yeah. You need to, you know, to file this complaint and so on. Well, actually, for some people, when you learn to, to become helpless, you know, this is um, unfortunately what happens sometimes. Yeah. And I think it um, highlights the importance of being a champion for people, for helping for helping those to stand up, for helping that to stand up to injustices that you are not experiencing because the people who are experiencing can't always do that. And, Absolutely. And that's why you and, have to get together. And that's why I'm actually grateful. I did have um, two champions um, at the time when, when I was experiencing my mental breakdown. Um, they didn't notice it at first because I, I think I'm quite good with masking it. You know, I always have this persona that I'm just fine. I, I, I'm doing well. I put on a smile on my face. So no one actually had a clue, you know, what was going on inside my head. Um, I, I, I was in a podcast a couple of days ago and, you know, we, we talked a little bit about Robin Williams. You know, how could someone oh, who's yeah. so happy and so, you know, you, you wouldn't think that he, he would commit suicide. And for me, I, I was in that position where if I actually ended up doing what I intended to do, people would just 
wouldn't have a clue. It would just happen one day without even realizing, without even um, noticing what happened or it's like, what's going on? What happened? Right. You know, How because I, I would always put on a, a brave face. You know, I would present myself with a smile and, and you wouldn't have a clue that there's something quite dark going on inside my head. How close did you come to hurting yourself? I was a minute away. Um, I actually went to the spot um, where I was going to do it. Um, yeah. I, I the, the only thing that stopped me is that my phone rang and it was my husband looking for me. Wow. But I was, I was there. I was, um, yeah, I was, I'm not going to go into detail because okay. I don't want to give people ideas. Gotcha. <laughs> I don't want to give people ideas because the, yeah, the, the way that I was planning to do it, it was if the first act doesn't do it, the second act will. Because oh it's a, a two-step thing. If the first one wouldn't do it, the second one surely will. But um, yeah, I, I actually was in that spot. I was a minute away from doing it until my phone rang and my husband was looking for me and asking me where I was. And, and he was saying that um, my son was looking for me. I, to have a, to have thought out a two-step process, I mean, to, no, I, with a son, like, talk about being in a dark place. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Um, I have to say that when when I look back and when I reflect about it, a couple of months ago, I would cry and I would, you know, I, I would say I couldn't believe that I would even think of doing that. But now that I look at it from this perspective that that's in my past. I, it's almost like I see it like a movie. Right, I bet. I almost feel like I'm detached, that this is something that happened to someone. Um, and it is unfortunate. Well, fortunately, it didn't um, It didn't happen. It was very close. Um, but that was actually my turning point. You know, for me, it was um, I'm someone who, if I, I set myself out to do something, um, I'm going to make sure that it's actually going to happen and it's going to be successful. <laughs> so for me, as far as suicide goes, I actually only need to do it once. <laughs> I, you know, there, there's no, so I, 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 I think that I'm, I'm quite fortunate. You know, I think that I'm still, you know, I, I, I'm a Christian as well, which is surprising, you know, thinking that I have these thoughts and, you know, how could you say that you're a Christian, but you know, it happens, oh, it no. happens. But, you know, for me, I, I, I feel that I'm still being, guided that I, you know, that, that God is still watching over me and to, to have that call, you know, I, I'm there at that spot, you know, all I have to do is climb what I was planning to climb on right. <laughs> and do it. But yeah, the, the phone rang and, and that actually stopped me from, from doing it. And it's making me realize that if I lose my life, my, my job, you know, the, the, my job wouldn't even care. Well, okay. They, they might feel guilty. Who knows, but I will be replaced. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I can easily be replaced as I left the job. I was replaced easily, but if I lose my life, no one is going to replace my role as a mother. Right. You know, there, you know, my son will only have one mom and for him to find out that his mother lost her life through that, you know, he, he will be traumatized and he's the one who, who will suffer the most. He's the most innocent one. And yet he's going to suffer the most. And mm. I don't think that that's fair. So 
you know that's actually what stopped me and that's what encouraged me to do to to get better and and to start my my healing that's when i started to reach out to people and and ask for help because i've I've always been sort of independent. I've been self-reliant, you know, assuming that I can do everything on my own. But at this time, you know, I was in it too deep. I I couldn't um really yeah. handle, you know, I lost my mind. So it was the point when I started reaching out for help when I started getting better. And it was my advocates um in the workplace that that helped me to to get better, you know, to to actually champion me and, and speak out for me and yeah, and, and eventually also empowered me to to have the courage to to take uh, take back control of my life and, and move forward because um yeah, you know, that's 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 what I can do next. Did you just cry as soon as you walked through the door at your house? Like, no, like, I felt what? numb. <laughs> Are you? It, it, it cry? Yeah, I I didn't actually cry. I just I just felt absolutely numb, and my husband saw that my boots were filthy, and he was asking, "Like, where were you? It's like, what happened to you? What, what, what's going on? It's like it's absolutely crazy. Like, what, what happened?" And he said, "Nah, I can't talk about it. Can I just go to sleep, please?" You know, I was just absolutely wow. numb. Um, wow. but I've, uh, up to this day, he still doesn't know. So I'm actually not going to make him listen to this podcast oh. because up to this day, he doesn't know where I went. He doesn't know what I was planning to do at that time. Um, he knows that I had suicidal tendencies, but he didn't know that I was actually that close. And his call was the call that, that actually saved my life. Why don't you want him? Why don't you want him to know how close you were? I didn't want him to feel um to worry. I uh, I don't know. I, maybe it's also because I didn't um I didn't want him to see me weak. Again, this is um this is my limitation still. I'm still trying to get over it that I don't really want to appear vulnerable um gotcha. you know to to the people who are closest to me. So for example, mm. my parents, um I wouldn't want them to to hear this podcast because I don't want them to to worry that I that I that they experienced that and I was actually that close. You know, they were close to losing a daughter or to my sister. I don't want her to to listen and hear that she was close to losing her sister. You know what I mean? So I didn't want them to worry. I know that there will come a time when they might um they might hear about these stories, but at this point, I'm still not ready. Um, I can be vulnerable um, with strangers. I can be vulnerable <laughs> with, um, imagine this, you know, on social media, on podcasts and so on. But um, right. when it comes to, you know, close family members, you know, I still feel um, quite reluctant to to show my vulnerability. I know that I, this is something that I will have to overcome, um, you know, to to be able to show my my vulnerabilities as well, not to appear strong all the time. I suppose there's a part of my identity again, as I've said, you know, I've always been uh, self-reliant. You know, I I've been a uh, a high achiever as well. You know, at the start of my at the start of my career, you know, they they looked up to me as someone who can do amazing things, mm. and for them to see me in a in a vulnerable light, you know, that's something that I still need to learn and and come to terms with because yeah, after all, I'm still human. Yeah, man, that's and. I just think it's it's for someone to be like you had said an achiever, and it from the outside I'm appear to have a better than okay life, right? Mm-hmm. To to be in a spot like that, 
is it can really help people who listen to get perspective on other people and what they're going through. Like you just never know. You never know. You never know. And and for me, if if I actually ended my life, yeah, people are going to question, but she's she's been having a great life. Right. You know, she just had a baby. She has a husband. She has a home. She's secure financially. She's successful in her career, you know, yeah. with all the, you know, the, the achievements that I've achieved in, in my career. You wouldn't think that there's anything going wrong. And, and you might question, it's like, what happened? You know, what made her do that? And people wouldn't have a clue. And you will hear about all these other successful people, you know, these so-called happy people who, who take their lives you actually don't know what's going on inside their heads. Um, mm. So if if you know someone who's, you know, if you have that inkling that they need someone to talk to, right. you know, reach out because you, you might just be that person um, who can actually turn things around for them, even if, you know, they're just putting on a mask. So, you know, people wouldn't, wouldn't actually see that they're, they're actually hurting inside. Yeah. And that's something, um, it's funny because again, I shouldn't say it's funny. I don't mean it like that. I guess when I'm thinking, mm-hmm. I just say stupid words, but it, it's, there's something that this doing a podcast like this, where you sit down with someone and listen to them for a couple hours that I don't know how regular that is for people without distraction. Like I'm not on my phone. I'm, I'm not like double surfing the web. I'm not multitasking, cooking dinner, dealing with long. Like I'm not, I'm not, it, I'm just talking to you. And I'm hearing mm-hmm. you and I'm focused on you. And without that, people can feel very alone and very isolated. And then they can't feel heard because yeah. nobody's listening. And that's part of what I just really enjoy about getting to know people and doing this pod is getting that reminder of, man, I got you got to make sure you take time in your life to just talk and listen to people, to be there with people because it matters. It keeps people out of dark places. Yeah, and and I actually appreciate you um doing this and and when you said you actually have your podcast for two to three hours, I'm thinking, what do you talk about? Yeah. Now well, I can see we're already you know, you an hour in. Engage, yeah, you yeah, you actually I mean, it's... engage with people and you listen and you talk and you actually delve into people's stories and you know uh, not just a superficial thing, but you actually really go in depth. So. I think for someone who's listening, um, you know, to to your podcast, it's it's quite interesting to to have all these insights from you know all the conversations that you're having, you know, just listening to all the all their perspectives, their stories, you know, it it can be quite enriching to to actually hear someone else's um story, and you know, it's it's really yeah. focused and it's actually quite intense. No, yeah, it 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 can be for sure. Um, and uh, Lord help me if I do one late at night with the time zone, and I like I finish at twelve. I'm like wired. I'm I'm up for hours, man. Um, and I'm I'm not even having to like talk and share my stories, you know. <laughs> so I can't imagine when people hang up, they're like, "Oh my god!" I've had people call back and be like, "Um, I I, I can can I add a little bit?" And you're like, "Yeah, blah blah blah." Um, I I don't know if it's a pivot pivot, but I'm kind of interested too that with the um discrimination you were feeling, it was predominantly based on the race of being Filipino from your perspective, not so much the gender of being a female? Uh, there are so many intersectionalities going on here. Um, here's the thing. You know, when I tried to analyze this, I couldn't really pinpoint what exactly um, the, where, where the discrimination it, it might be all, but let, let me just put all the factors in. So right. first of all, I'm a migrant. 
Um, I'm a Filipino migrant, so I'm a person of color here in the UK. I'm a woman, and I have a child. So oh, there, there are several layers there. I did not there. even consider that. And that, again, that, that might go to my toxic masculinity. That's mm. right, the discrimination of having a child and being like, oh, she's caring more about her kid. She's not working as hard. She's not putting in the hours. That's it. That's wow. it. So, you Didn't know, you're you're that. you're making assumptions that just because I had a child, it doesn't mean that I couldn't take on this um this responsibility, for example. If I've been doing something right. for for 6 years straight, you know, leading projects on this particular area, and you know this this new responsibility comes up and i'm the perfect person to actually you know to move forward and lead the team and you give it to someone else who hasn't got a clue just because just because she's there <laughs> man that's <laughs> you yeah. know that's actually not on man so and i like in a professional setting for that kind of leadership and it, i i don't know i mean i have a child she's 10 but like i don't think I've lost out on any jobs because they're like, well, what if Sean has to go get his kid when she's sick at school and he has to mm. stay home with her? Right. And like, that's a funny discrimination. There I go again with the word funny. Cause it's not funny, yeah, but, yeah. but that that's a discrimination where like, I remember there was a campaign, at least here in the States about like embracing women who are breastfeeding and not mm -hmm. making them feel awkward about it. Right. Like don't do, don't freaking stare and don't shame. <laughs> right. Like don't, 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 don't be stupid. <laughs> But, and like, I remember working at um, a bar and the lady was, her husband was getting a drink and it's more like a lounge, but like, she just whips this thing out, right? Whips it out, no blanket, puts the baby on the baby suckling. And like the whole bar came to a stop and everyone was <laughs> like, oh, and the poor woman then realized like, I guess this isn't accepted. Right. But yeah. I, I didn't take it to the place of the microaggressions and limitations of a professional career that you might not even realize, but in your head, you're feeling like, could it be? And now you're feeling yeah, guilty about being a mom. I was actually questioning that and I couldn't really pinpoint right? exactly what it was. And when I raised it, you know, the, just before I went into my depression, I was still in sort of a fighting mode. Right. <laughs> you know, there was still some fight in me um, because I, I wasn't really being um, tripped over at that point yet. But, you know, it, it was the beginning. And I did raise that. It's like, what? what what do you what yeah. do you mean it's not mine you know i okay i i'm back you know i'm back from maternity i i don't know if if you watched you know the big bang theory yeah. um they they've had episodes where bernadette um was worried that uh, ruchi you know one of her um colleagues was going to take her project while she's on maternity leave and you know that's sort of what happened to me. You know, I went on maternity leave. I I I actually did um, grow a project over a span of six years. And oh it was and when it was time for me to come back and run it, it was given to someone else. And you know, when when it was given to someone else, I actually did questions like, what? Yeah. What? Well, dude, that would be like losing a child with yeah, especially like, in what? like. In, in and, the manner then, that you're doing and, and, stuff. And what what was what what they said to me was like, oh, I thought that you didn't want it. It's <laughs> like what? Feel free to well, email why me. Why would you ask me? <laughs> no doubt. Why did like, you assume because I had a child? Golly what? day. Yeah, you you could have sent me a text message. I would have replied. <laughs> so you know, so I I actually wow. left that um that meeting questioning. Did I do anything wrong? Yeah. Um, maybe he's right. You know, you know, so I started question maybe I'm not 
as good as I thought I was. You know, so you start, you know, I started questioning my value. I started doubting myself. And that that was the start of it. And I just spiraled from yeah. there. And it- I was just completely shocked as well. I didn't expect that because... um. Yeah, you know, these, these were my colleagues. Years. I trusted them. You know, they were mm. like allies. You know, I, I right. didn't I didn't anticipate for that to happen. And for us to be in academia, I had this impression that, oh, we are educated. We know um, how to respect, you know, professional boundaries. Right. We know about these things. It's not going to happen until it happens. And <laughs> now I feel like this is funny because when you went with doubt, questioning myself, like that's why I keep saying about blowing up the car because I feel like that would have filled me with rage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think for me I was just also exhausted. Yeah, that, right. Yeah, I just didn't have the energy. It, it, it instead of yeah blowing up with rage, I just got sucked out. You know, yeah. the energy got sucked out because if you've been building something up for six years, and on such you're excited a about level. it. No you're doubt. building up the energy, and for it to be taken away from you. I just felt drained. Then, yeah. you know, to questions like, yeah, my question is like, what? Yeah. What? You know, that I, I was, I, I left the, I left the meeting feeling that way. And I, you know, I, I didn't recover, you know, it, it took me, yeah, about two to three years, um, you know, being in that position um, until I actually had to make a conscious um, decision to, you know, to get better. So what was the exit? How happy when, I guess, I don't know how to ask it, but like, I'm basically like thinking, how excited were you when you finally figured out the plan to be like, I'm out of here, man. Forget y'all. <laughs> like, are you popping champagne bottles? And you're like, not, not like this criminal mastermind. That's like, yes, two years. They don't even know what's going to hit them. <laughs> no, I think I... I actually was reading uh, a book. Uh, there was uh, Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. You know, it, it was something oh that God. I read at an early age. I think I was around seven years old when I first, you know, um, came across Napoleon Hill's work. And um, at the time when I started um, planning my my exit strategy, I actually picked up Napoleon Hill's book and that's when I sort of rekindled that fire again that I felt that I lost, mm. that it's actually me um, who is in control of my thoughts, that no one else can control the way I think, and that my my thoughts can actually impact on my behavior and therefore impact on my circumstances. So that sort of prompted that fire again, you know, that reignited the fire in me. And I started thinking about, okay, this is shitty. I have to get out. Um, what do I have to do? Um, you know, what do I know for now? And, and and how can I continue to grow and develop so I can actually leave? And what I did was I, I started writing my self-help books. For me, on the one hand, I, I started writing my books to try to make sense of my experience. First of all, you know, I wanted to make sense of the strategies that I know from psychology that could help me and others um, get out of the rut, you know, to, mm. to get out of that, um, you know, those those dark thoughts and, and to get yourself out of those um, dark points. So I started writing my book to, to make sense of my, of my uh, experience and also to make sense of the strategies that I can use 
from psychology, apply it myself, and and compile it. It's it's almost like a toolkit for me. Right. So when I start um my practice, you know, because I was also planning to to start my own um psychology practice. At least all of my tools and resources are compiled in a book. So it it helps me in 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 that way. And because I'm an academic, I knew how to write. You know, that's that's the easy part for me. However, if I'm going to self-publish my books, that's the part that I need to to work on. You know, because for me as an academic, all I had to do was write my books. You know, write my papers, pass it on to the publisher, and they're gonna deal with it. Right. Because I'm exploring self-publishing. I had to learn how to do it. You know, I had to learn how to how to build my publishing team. I had to learn how to market and position my books and so on and so forth. So during the time when I was planning my exit strategy, I learned, you know, I, I taught myself how to self-publish my books. And when I launched my first book, I actually got to number one bestseller, um, you know, my first self-published book. And I outranked Tim Ferriss. You know, it's the amazing Tim Ferriss, you know, to get to number one bestseller. Um, it, it gave me the confidence that I act, I can actually do it. You know, I can make money myself, you know, based from the royalties of, you know, just from the royalties of my books. And, you know, for me to learn how to market and position my books and, you know, so many skills that I'm gaining because I'm stepping out of my comfort zone, I found that really uh, liberating. I found that quite empowering. And that gave me the confidence to actually leave my job a year and a half later. So it wasn't just the figure out a way to make money. It was kind of just figuring out how to continue pursuing your passion without the support of academia. That's right. That's right. So I, I as I've mentioned earlier, I, you know, I still love teaching. I love um, research. I love engaging with people. And certainly, this is something that that I do now. You know, I can still pursue my passion. You know, with with teaching and writing and research without having to rely on on an institution. You know, I can set up my own company. I can set up my own practice. I can teach others and empower others to to also share their message. At the moment, I'm helping so many coaches. You know, therapists, uh, visionaries, really who want to share a story, you know, if they have a message or an empowering story to share, you know, I I, I, I show them how they can write and self-publish their books on Amazon. You know, it's it's the, it, it reminds me of, of the, the process that I, that I go through in the university where I teach students how to do it. So I am still tapping into that desire to right. teach. But at the same time, I feel that I'm making a, a bigger impact because if I help these people share their insights, you know, share their stories, their knowledge, you know, that can help other people, then you'll have that ripple effect. And I feel that I'm contributing more than just being constrained in the four walls of, of a classroom. Why did you go self-publish route versus like, going to a publisher? Sure. Well, to be honest with you, I still have my textbooks traditionally published. So when I write um, about health psychology, for example, and I want it to, you know, to go to universities and so on, I still have the traditional publisher um, to deal with that because they can go into bookstores, they can go into in universities, you know, reading lists and so on. So okay. I still have that option. However, I chose the self-publishing route because I have more control and autonomy 
autonomy over you know creative control over oh, the pricing true. the marketing the distribution and the time frame when it comes to traditional publishing it usually takes about uh, 18 months to 24 months to get our work out and for me I want my message to be out there you know if if it is something that could be more practical you know something that could help someone else I don't have I don't want to wait for two years to get that out I want it now you know out now and engage more with my audience so with the self-publishing route um, if I upload my book on Amazon today I can um expect in a matter of hours for it to go live on there and because it is it is there i can engage with my readers i have more interaction with my readers i, I you know i can understand them better because they they connect with me you know through social media through through emails and so on so I feel that there is a better connection with the readers, you know, through the self-publishing route. And yes, in terms of autonomy, in terms of, yeah, in terms of control over your price, over your content, over the time frame, um, you know, you'll have more freedom and autonomy when you go down the self-publishing route. Gotcha. Gotcha. God, you, I cannot imagine how you go to bed with as much stuff that runs through your mind. <laughs> I, I have a warm cup of water yeah just water not coffee not tea just just warm water <laughs> and i don't know I, I don't know why i went to this um spot but now i'm like trying to picture you as like a high school person were you like <laughs> captain cheerleader were you like the one trying to get everybody together to like have a party kind of a thing like <laughs> Like, what was your role in high school to become this kind of person with this kind of energy and these kind of thoughts? I've always considered myself unpopular um, yeah. in high school because I was a bit of a nerd. Oh, you know, you can't okay. imagine that I'm, yeah, you can't imagine that I'm a bit of a nerd because <laughs> I, yeah, I'm an academic. You know, I love, I love reading. I love books. I love, you know, I, I did say that I'm a bit of a teacher's pet. Um, but I have to say, um, I was in the student board, like what do you call the student council? Right. And I was the, and I would usually be the class president, and I would be the level representative, and and so on. But yeah, I wasn't really like a cheerleader. You know, I wasn't really popular um, in that way. I didn't really have a lot of friends um, in high school. I was uh, quite introverted, and I have to say again, you know, high school was a, a relatively difficult time in my life because I I didn't feel as if I, I fit in um, because I was, shall we say, underage. Um, I I actually started university when I was 15. Oh my so God, so you're when, a when, genius. When I was in high school, I was a child. Um, so I didn't quite, you know, everybody's talking about, you know, having relationships, you know, they have a boyfriend, they have a girlfriend and I just didn't get it yeah, because you, I, I was a Because you have a, a juice box and a coloring book. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was just, I, I was just oblivious. I, I didn't, you know, I, I couldn't really fit in because, um, yeah, they were teenagers and, and I, and I wasn't, um, at that time. So I really just focused on, on reading. I, I focused on, um, yeah, being academically um, excellent, you know, that was uh, my world. And actually, even at the start of my career, I was I was just like that. You know, I was driven to to excel um, on a professional level. At a young age, I was driven to excel academically right. um, to the point that I sort of neglected my 
my social growth, you know, my psychological maturity. And, you know, I had to experience all sorts of hardships, you know, moving here to the UK, having to experience racism and discrimination and having to rely on other people um, for support and comfort. Um, you know, it did take uh, a bit of time for me to have that emotional maturity and growth because certainly, you know, at a young age and at the, at the start of my career, I was just so focused on academic excellence, you know, in, in terms of, you know, excelling in my career and, you know, all other aspects of my life were, were sort of neglected. When when you said start university, because sometimes when you speak with people from different countries, cultures, um, words mean different things. Mm. So are you saying- What does that mean? Yeah, yeah I, so I, is I actually university passed... like college? So you've graduated college. high school. Yeah, grade. I graduated from high school when I was 15 and I I was supposed to go straight into med school. I got accepted into an accelerated program where you where you can skip pre-med. Um, you can go straight into med school. So I would have been Doogie Hauser <laughs> if, if I went down that route. But my mom, um, you know, bless her, she she advised me not to to take that route because at 15 to go into med school yes i might be academically ready um you know i i passed the test you know i i, I can do the the maths i can do the science you know i i can i can manage i can manage with the with the content you know the, the academic content but when it comes to engaging with care with, with with patients you know having to deal with life and death on on a day-to-day -day basis i might not have that um emotional and social maturity to handle that so at age 15 I had the choice to to go straight into med school, but I was advised to, you know, maybe have a go with psychology first, you know, <laughs> take it as a pre-med course. And, you know, four years later, I, I graduated when I was 19. Um, again, it was, uh, yeah, I, I, I aimed for academic excellence. Uh, I graduated magna cum laude when I, when I finished my my um, my first degree and my mom asked me so you know do you do you still want to do you still want to pursue medicine and I said well actually my ambition now is I want to go to um I want to go overseas and pursue postgraduate education in um in psychology and and that's exactly what I did next and that's how you wound up getting to Britain Yes, that's how I ended up um, going to Britain. Um, I only intended to to come here to to study, um, to to do my masters uh, and my PhD. Well, I didn't actually had funding initially when when I when I was hoping to to do my PhD. So for the masters for the masters degree, my my parents funded that. And I wanted to go back uh, immediately because I ran out of money, essentially. <laughs> um, but I was offered a, a PhD scholarship. Um, and as I've, as I've mentioned to you earlier, at the start of my career, you know, when I first came here to the UK, I was surrounded by um, supportive, wonderful people who nurtured me um, at that stage. You know, I was offered a job. You know, I, I became the editorial assistant um, for a journal. Um, I got uh, the PhD scholarship. I got funding from Oxfam. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, you know, that's how I ended up staying here, you know, finishing my PhD, got a job as a, as a community development and health promotion fellow, and then eventually becoming a lecturer um, um, in the end. So it all just, um, 
you know, it just happened like that. And I eventually met my husband, had a family, you know. So, yeah, I ended up staying here even if I only intended to stay here for a year. Yeah. Um. So, and I should have asked this earlier when um graduated high school at 15. Like, who was the teacher that called your parents to be like, um, I think Emmy needs to skip three grades. <laughs> like, like, are you in first grade or are you, are you reading like War and Peace in kindergarten? And they're like, yeah, just give, get her up to sixth grade. No, I think I just took a test. Um, <laughs> I, I, I took a placement test when I was a kid and I just passed it and yeah, and I, I got in. <laughs> that's, a, that's all I could say about that. There, there was nothing oh really God. special that, you know, a teacher um, came to my parents. And, and to be perfectly honest with you, because I I went into a high school that had a non-graded system, I was waiting around for a long time. Um, wh- what I mean by non-graded system is we didn't really have the traditional um, you you go to school, you take a test uh, at the end of the academic year, and then you progress to the next year. Right. With us, we had modules. You study the modules. Oh. When you're ready, you take the test. And then when you pass that test, you take the next module and so on and so forth. So you move at your own pace. Uh, but for me, because I was moving too fast, I would finish the entire year in two months <laughs> and and I would just wait for everybody else to finish. So if if I if I wanted, I could have actually finished earlier. But you know, I just didn't bother. <laughs> I just I just waited for everyone to finish and we all graduated at the same time. Did you like doodle? Like what are you doing to fill your time? Are you writing notes and distracting kids? <laughs> I, I I don't know. I, I, I remember myself just imagining things. And I, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's probably why they thought I was a bit of a weirdo. <laughs> because I would just stare and, you know, I would just think about things. Or I, I do remember thinking about number patterns for oh. some reason. I know it's weird. But yeah, I was thinking about number patterns and, you know, just imagine. I was daydreaming a lot right. um, as well and, um, you know, planning out, yeah, it, you know, just to, you know, just to have a career in the future. Yeah, at that time, I wanted to be a doctor, you know, I would daydream and, yeah, I, yeah, I, there was a lot of waiting around um, in high school because, yeah, because of the system that we had. It was a fantastic system, I have to say, right. you know, because the, the students were self-paced, you take control of your own learning. Um, you know, if, if you fail the test, all you have to do is study and, and take it again and again and again until you master um, that particular topic. So I, I love that. I love that um, non-graded system. We did have some issues, you know, going into university because when the university asked for our grades, we didn't have grades. Right. <laughs> you know, it's either you passed high school or you failed it, you know. Um so yeah, but it was a it, it was an interesting time, you know, high school. I I didn't really have a lot of close friends. Um, I wouldn't say that I was bullied. You know, people were quite nice to me, but I didn't really form um, you know really close bonds because yeah, I was a bit of a weirdo um, at the time, and I didn't feel like I quite fit in because I was sort of younger you know relatively younger than than most of my peers well at that it's funny because a year a year at that age is almost like dog years in difference with like social maturity there's a huge difference between 11 and 12 12 and 13 right like it but then if you meet someone later on in life and you're like oh you're 44 and you're married to someone who's 40 like you you don't Mm. get a look but if it's fine but if you're a senior you're not like hooking up with freshmen 
right? Like if you're 18, you're not looking for 14 year olds. Hopefully not. You know, like, <laughs> like it's a huge difference. It's a of, big difference. Yes, yeah. that's right. So, you know, my, young, my yeah. mom was worried at that time, you know, in high school that I wasn't actually making friends. But when I went to university, I, I actually didn't have that problem that even if, even if my peers were um, a lot older than me, the age wasn't really so much of a of a problem because our intellectual uh, level, I think, yeah. you know, we, we connected more at that level rather than than the age. Whereas right. in high school, you know, everyone was just talking about, you know, it, it's it's that age, you know, you've you've hit puberty, yeah. and everybody's talking about, you know, your social life and so on, which which I still didn't have at that time. Whereas at the university level, we were all connecting at a more, you know, academic, a more intellectual level. So you know, I actually did form, you know, my lifelong friends are actually I I formed through the university university years and yeah because of of that connection at, at the at an intellectual level so you have to have all sorts of t-shirts that just say stupid things like um i'm a genius graduated <laughs> high school at 15 num- best-selling author with like an arrow pointing to your face tell, tell me <laughs> these are these are wardrobe items in your closet <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that's uh, not for me. Probably my mom. Oh, that's <laughs> but a good so point. Much for me. My mom is just so proud, you know, that's whenever I, I remember when I had my first um, publications, you know, she would carry my books around everywhere she <laughs> went. It's just so embarrassing. But, you know, it's, um, yeah, my, my mom is just, I think my, my biggest fan. It's, it's embarrassing, but, you know, it's, it's, it's nice. <laughs> That's how often do you get to go to the Philippines or do, cause you, you can't, they can't want to go to London or I'm sorry, England, right? Like you have mm-hmm. to, every chance you get, want to go back to Philippines and enjoy island life, right? Yeah. Well, now that I'm not, um, now that I'm not in academia anymore, I'm actually free to right. go, ha- <laughs> to go as often as I like. However, because of Corona, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that, that can be a bit difficult. The last time I left, uh, the last time I went home was last year, um, when, when my grandmother, um, you know, she, 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 she passed away eventually, but I, I did manage to, to visit her just before she passed away. But yeah, when I was, uh, when I was working at the university, it was quite difficult for me to, to go back to the Philippines. Um, my parents would actually come here instead of me going back there. Oh, they um, had because, to hate you know, it. Especially when I, when I gave birth, you know, they actually oh, did yeah. come, you know, stay with us for a couple of months to, to help with the, with the childcare. So yeah, for for us, you know, for our family, it's actually easier for my parents to come and visit us rather than us visit them because I'm here in the UK, my sister is in Saudi Arabia, my brother is in LA, and yeah. my other brother is in the Philippines. So we're actually around the world. Yeah, so, right. you know, for my parents, they would rather you know, hop from one country to another, you know, to visit their children and their grandchildren right. instead of, you know, having their children visit them, you know, and, and go there. So, yeah, so that's that's actually how we've been. You know, I, we, we haven't been a family, you know, to see each other as a, as a unit for, I think, when was the last time I saw my sister? It was 2005. 
I oh think so. God. Yeah, 15 years. It's been 15 years since we've been all together as a family. So, yeah, it's been quite a while. Um, but yeah, that's that's just how it is for, for I for I suppose for a lot of um migrant uh families around the world, you know, years pass um without you know families uh being together uh as a as a whole unit. That is 2000. You. Is it because like of the career drivenness? Like like why are how do you wind up L.A. Saudi Arabia, Britain? Like like what? Are, why what, why what is puzzles, everybody all around the world? What puzzles well, are you kids doing? What board games are you playing where your interests are so freaking diverse? Oh well, just God. Monopoly. You know? Well, actually, you no. Know, my <laughs> exactly. my brother, uh, my brother is in LA because that's sort of like his comfort zone. To be honest, most of my relatives are in LA. Uh, my mother's side of the family, they are there, so he he has family there, so he's comfortable gotcha. um, in LA. When I came here to the UK, my relatives were asking, "Why don't you come here in LA? You UCLA is fantastic in psychology." Da da da. They said, "Yeah, I know UCLA is fantastic, but you're all there, and I actually don't want to. I don't want the family drama. You know, just leave me alone, and you know, let me let me find my feet. Let me find my." my my independence um here in Europe, here in the UK. So yeah, I, I mean if if I if I went to 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 the States, you know, if I went to UCLA, uh, my career trajectory will be completely different. You know, I would probably be pursuing um experimental psychology you know i'll probably be in the lab and, and doing that kind of stuff but because i ended up here in the uk when i met my my mentor you know my supervisor here in london you know that was still the mentality that i had you know i wanted to do experiments you know that was my training i wanted to do not experiments with animals but you know experiments generally yeah, yeah lab-based research but that um that supervisor that mentor um changed the trajectory of my career from you know being a lab based researcher to being a community led you know community development researcher because he he saw that spark in me that I was quite passionate about you know social justice I was passionate about um community empowerment and he wondered why aren't you doing this for your for your career why are you doing you know, experiments instead of actually doing a meaningful work on the ground. So, yeah, coming here to the UK, yeah, changed the trajectory of my career. If I ended up staying in in LA, yeah, I would probably be a an experimental psychologist. Here in the UK, I'm a community psychologist. My sister, um, originally when when we finished university, actually the three of us, my sister, my brother, and me, um, we all graduated at the same time. You know, uh, we finished university at the same time. So my parents had an emptiness, all the all the <laughs> kids leaving um, at the same time. But my my sister, um, she's an interior designer. Um, but, you know, she could have done really well um, in the States being an interior designer, but she met her husband and, you know, she she converted to Islam and they moved to Saudi Arabia, you know, because they can practice uh, Islam more freely there than to be in the same. They, they felt gotcha. discriminated, you know, especially 2005, you know, 9-11 oh, yeah. just happened. It's not a good place for, you know, to be Muslim, you know, uh, uh, you know, in, in that in that no, space at that time. You know, they, they felt uncomfortable yeah. um, there. So they migrated to, to Saudi Arabia and that's how she ended up there. I mean, it's 2020. And when you said she converted to Islam, 
like I had a reaction, mm. you know, like that, that still is something where then you have to like realize like it, it's not what you, it's not associated with what you're associating it with Sean, which is exactly that it's nine eleven. Mm-hmm. Like you immediately go, I, I shouldn't say you immediately go there like everybody, but I, in my mind, I was like, Whoa. And then I'm like, Oh no, no, you're being no, an idiot. No, no, that's, yeah. yeah. You're being an idiot. Stop. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. like so you have to check for, yourself. For, for her, they, they've made that conscious decision to actually move out because yeah. they, they can feel the tension. I bet. You know, it's, it's not really I their bet. fault, you know, that that happened, but they, they were getting a lot of, um, yeah, a, a lot of aggression from the community because she's wearing a hijab. Yeah. So, yeah, so they moved to Saudi Arabia and then I haven't um, seen, uh, seen her since uh, since she moved there. Yeah, no, and that's something that, um, and so like when you say hijab, that's, I, I don't connect that in the same way as the word Islam, which again, mm. if I just go like psychologically, it's kind of interesting to me the what you connect specific words to and how you react to them. And it takes me almost to like marketing because with sports and Nike, they there's been a lot of marketing of female athletes wearing a hijab and mm. empowering that, you know, not yeah. making a forceful dis- or taking a forceful position of not discriminating because you see this visually. But it was, I don't know, it was, um, I, I was surprised that I had that initial thought and then again immediately went to 9-11 and mm. then you start thinking about how other people can definitely feel that like anywhere you would go it, it would be yeah that would be very hard yeah it's, it's just a shame that um that my sister couldn't actually visit us here um they've tried but their visa got denied you know i think oh my God. um for for muslims to to come and visit here in the uk well probably because my my um that. my brother-in-law is he's not an extremist he doesn't you know he's actually a peace-loving person um but he he's quite popular on on youtube actually so they, they they couldn't come here so it's you know i i haven't seen her um since she in person you know we, we see each other on online but you know we haven't right. seen each other since um since 2005 and it's just a shame because i also couldn't go to saudi arabia um it's quite difficult for me um to go there i think i need to bring my husband you know i think i need to have a like a, a man escorting me when i oh. go around um in that space so you know there are certain things that i need to learn you know what's acceptable and what's not acceptable for a woman um in that in that uh in in that context so i I still couldn't get my head around it so yeah that's also one of the reasons why i i haven't visited them there yet and i I actually don't know when i'm gonna see her again i mean now with with the corona virus it's quite difficult to travel anyway um uh so so we'll see we'll see how it goes you would have to meet in like switzerland right (laughs) meet at a neutral place (laughs) god i can't imagine like and and it's funny because i i just like to picture like silly images now for whatever reason i'm picturing all you kids on like the rug at the age of four, having the deepest, most philosophical talks with like your dolls and you know, like and your stuffed animals, like almost um like a a world trade organization type stuff or like philosophical roundtables. I don't know can, why. Can I make a confession? It's 
it's not like that at all. Um, when I was five years old, when I was five years old, I actually um, was a contestant at a beauty pageant. Um, oh, it, no. it was a, it's a program in the Philippines called uh, Little Miss Philippines. So, okay. You know, so I was actually into um, five years old, you know, beauty pageants. I was uh, I was singing at the mall. <laughs> so, well, <laughs> I was singing at the mall. I was a rhythmic gymnast as well. Um, and my brother, because he was so much into WWF, it wasn't um, WWE at that time. It was right? WWF at that time. His his um, favorite was uh, The Undertaker and uh, Brett the Hitman Hart. He would practice the sharpshooter with me. Oh, dude, that thing is... Oh, my goodness, it was so it. painful. Oh, my <laughs> so gosh. That's the kind of interaction I have with my with my brother and my sister. <laughs> so, you, 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 can't, you, you know, you don't imagine, like, reading and philosophical. So, like, yeah, we do... We do wrestling. Well, my my brother does anyway. He does the sharpshooter and the mm. all of these things. Like I'm the Undertaker. It's like God. It's yeah, just... the choke slam, <laughs> dude. That that's something I miss. Um, is like we would have mattresses because the Undertaker would finish him like with this like wicked choke slam and like picking each other up and just dead dropping you and your boys on a sleepover because you're just watching WWE and you're hyped up on the testosterone. And like, I'm amazed that like more people are not paralyzed from doing WWE moves, like with their friends. Well, with their friends, well, yeah, family, it's just for you know? fun, really. It's um, but yeah, I would. The the thing was, I would I would actually complain. I was just like, ah, stop it, you know, it hurts. And, and I would be the one who would be reprimanded because <laughs> they would say, why are you teasing your brother? If you don't want to play, don't play. But <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> But yeah, I have to say, okay, it, it was uh, it was fun. It was good to have that um, that that fun time with with um, with my brother and my sister. We had some sibling rivalry as well. We used to fight over um, organ pieces. Like we, we used to play the organ, you know, the keyboard. Oh, the Oregon and Trail game. The, sorry. You mean the organ or the Oregon Trail game? Oh, sorry, the organ, like the keyboard. Uh, you were fighting over pieces for an organ. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have music pieces, right? Like all sorts of songs. We will, for example, buy a buy a new piece at the you know at the music shop, right. and we will fight over who gets to play that piece. <laughs> that was, and if if someone takes ownership of that, and if someone else plays that, we will have a fight because that's my piece. I'm the only one who's allowed to play that song. <laughs> you know? so, so that's the kind of sibling rivalry that, that we had. You know, we, we would fight over who gets to play that piece of music. That's... Um, but yeah, but, but that's about it really. It's, it was, um, it was, it was good fun. Um, you know, growing up with my brother and my sister. Um, we also had a store um, in our house uh, at that time. And we used to, um, we we used to well, not really play. We were helping out at the store, and I would I would make this joke. You know, sometimes in my lectures, um, uh, I would talk about smoking cessation. You know, because I'm into health promotion and community development. I would say, ah, you know, we have all all sorts of uh, stop smoking campaigns. But when I was a child, I was actually selling cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, yeah, literally, I was selling cigarettes at our store. So you know, it's just you know some of those memories that you know that I had from childhood. They they were good fun. But I think you know it molded us um, into the you know the, into the people that that we are today. Yeah, and um, really well. You know, 
know, yeah. having a, a grasp of, you know, business as well, you know, with, with my mom being quite entrepreneurial, you know, that you can actually make money um, by, you know, setting up your own business. You know, you don't really have to, of course, you can have a job. You know, my, my dad is the, you know, he's the one who goes uh, through the nine to five in, in our family. But also seeing that my mom as an entrepreneur, you can actually um, create, a, create a business, you know, to... Yeah. To, to have uh, to generate jobs and you know you don't actually have to rely um, on others to to pay your rent and at the time when I was uh, having struggles with um, you know with 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 my job uh, as an academic you know I did tell my parents what was going on and they said um, they started calculating and they said yeah I think you can leave. Why don't you leave? <laughs> you know, so, you know, so they they were quite ballsy like that as well. That if if you're not happy um where you are, pack up and and move on. You you know, life is so short. You don't yeah. have to spend that time being miserable. You can take um ownership of your life. You know, and 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 move on. If if you if you if you are not happy um where you are right now. Um. Yeah. Options. It, it options are so empowering and um. Um, to me, mate, like to me, it's one of those things where I just, in many decisions I make in life, I always try to make decisions where I'll have options and I'm not cornered in, because it, it's liberating. Because if it sucks, all right, I'm out. Like you bounce. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, you have you ha you actually have the choice, and yeah. when when you have that choice, you know, yeah, you're right. It's it's quite liberating. You you can, okay, within the remit of the law, <laughs> yeah. but you know, you, you can do you can do whatever you can do whatever you want and whatever um whatever makes you happy. How much do you miss actually physically being with um your siblings, and the family? Uh, I haven't thought about that for for a long time because yeah as as i've mentioned i've i've been in this position for for so long now right. and being here in the uk on my own since 2002 i i'm i almost got used to it right um whenever i go to the philippines to to visit my parents and my brother and my sister you know they, they're not there it does feel empty and i do feel feel bad for my parents like we would go to our um to, to to the home where we grew up and it just feels so different you know the energy is so different right. it used to be quite happy and you know it's buzzing you know with with children running around and you yeah, know like laughing and so on and then now there's just you, you can sense the emptiness and it, it's quite it's quite sad but this is a you know this is a reality for some parents you know when you have you know this emptiness um you know, uh, I, I think for us grown up, grown up kids, you know, we need to learn to actually reach out <laughs> to our parents, you know, especially if they mm. are still alive to, you know, it's not easy. It's not easy to spend, let's say, you know, 18 years raising you, um, you know, spending all that time together as a family. And then just like that, it's empty, you know, they're gone. It's, it's not, um, it's not easy. Um, and for me, I, I do what I can to, to, to stay connected with my parents and you know with with my brother and my sister I still connect with my with my sister you know my brother is a little bit busy with his own family um right now but we we know that if we need each other we can actually just you know call them and you right. know ask for help if we need it yeah it, it I don't know I'm an only child but it, it's one of those things where from people you know just knowing people when um the, the relationships with siblings is just so different than relationships with um 
friends, you know, with coworkers, with whatever, um, associates. And, uh, I was wondering about that, even if it was like a, um, cultural thing for Filipinos, as far as the family dynamic, because it, it, and whatever, I I tend to ask questions and I feel like they always come off clunky and I don't mean it to be clunky, but it's Mm. more of an interest, but you guys seem so almost like Americanized with this drive for success. Mm. And I don't know if it's like, I don't want to say, call it capitalistic because I don't think like Mm. the money is driving it, but the success. And, um, I, I didn't have that. Um, I, I, I was, um, I don't know. I, I hadn't thought about that from a Filipino culture. Not that they're not successful, but like that. Well, the, well the we do have a very a strong unit. influence from the Americans. You know, we've been colonized by the Americans for 40 years. And if, even after, quote unquote, the Americans left, you know, they, it doesn't really feel like they actually left. Huh. Um, you know, the influence is still there. And we have this um, colonial mentality, you know, for some Filipinos to look up to 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 our colonizers you know thinking that you know the american dream is is the one to aspire for um we're we're still trying to to take pride you know just trying to build up um the filipino pride once again but but yes you are right you know the the american influence is actually quite strong um in our um in our culture and the the drive to succeed um particularly i have to say like with with academic excellence you know that's actually something that you know um filipinos um really put high um you, you will see that we, we've got a lot of, you know, university graduates, you know, it's not that they're, they're actually using the, the university degree um, in their job right now, but it's just a, a matter of pride to actually finish university and have a degree. So there's something there, you know, something around achieving um, uh, excellence, you know, being successful. And yeah, I, I, I suppose there's this, um, yeah, there's the the American influence that that sort of driven that somehow. Right, and then there's just more opportunities as you leave the islands to get that success, hmm. or is that not typical? It, I guess I should because it I, I'm always super interested in how people not not escape or not get away from, but leave like their neighborhood or leave their state in America, and like you go across the country. Right. But now you're leaving and literally going to you have several family members in different countries like that blows my mind to be that gutsy. I have to say for from the perspective of our family, you know, I couldn't really speak on behalf of the rest of the Filipinos for for my brother. The only reason why he went to L.A. is because um, my cousins are there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he 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 loves my my cousin, uh, Kuya Fred, you know, he they're buddies so it's you know it's a yeah and 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 for him i suppose he he found that there are opportunities for him to 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 develop in his career for me yeah the reason why i came here to the uk is because i actually wanted international connections um in the philippines it's quite um insular you know we don't really have a lot of international connections so my main driver for being here in the uk is i want to connect with you know international colleagues you know i all of the things that i set out to do you know when i first came here to the uk i said i wanted to um i wanted to do my postgraduate degree i actually want to make connections with you know international scholars you know to be on the international uh you know editorial board to you know to have a you know yeah to have this kind of um 
prestige uh, at an international level and it makes it easier for me um, to do that if if I am in an international right. community such as in London or for example New York yeah you know where you have a, a good mix of you know there's a diversity of cultures and you know you get to interact with um, people from around the world I mean when I was in London and and up until now I'm still connected with my friends um, uh, you know they, they, are, they are now back in, in their um, home countries you know from Lebanon from Israel from Greece those coming back to, to Germany to Italy to the states to australia they're just everywhere jamaica you know so that was my main driver gotcha. you know the reason why i left um the philippines was not because i was i wasn't thinking that oh you know it's just the philippines there's nothing here but actually i wanted to be in a place where it is um you know there's a diversity of cultures that i could actually soak up you know all the all these um knowledge and culture from from around the world and you know london is a great place to um, to to have that kind of experience. So for me, that was my main driver. For my sister, I think it was just a personal circumstance right. um, that she <clears throat> ended up in Saudi Arabia. You know, she's a homeschooling mom of four. You know, wow. she hasn't really pursued a, a career, so it's not really to do with um, you know career success or achievement in that regard. But for her, it's just the circumstance, and it's a choice to actually raise her family in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, so right. there are other Filipinos who actually do leave the country to to work overseas um because there are no um jobs that that suit them um in the country but certainly for my friends who stayed in the Philippines you know most of them because for me um having studied psychology as a pre-med course most of my friends are now doctors. Right. <laughs> you know they they ended up staying in the Philippines to practice medicine or some of them pursued law and, and they became lawyers. So they they stayed in the Philippines and they they are serving the nation. You know, it's this new generation serving the nation, staying there and, you know, building the building the the country and and we're actually doing really well as a country you know we're we're progressing and and we're we're making good progress you know as far as our economic growth and, and our social growth is concerned so yeah um yeah, you know we, we have a lot of filipinos around the world but for those who actually stayed in the philippines you know they're building the country and then they're doing a, a, a really great job at it yeah and that just goes to my ignorance of um i think i've I think I've met two Filipino people, but I was like 18 and I, I, they came over on a, I believe it's an H1N1 visa to work. I, I live near a resort town. So there's a lot of um, foreigners who come in um, to work for the summer and then go back home with the money they're saving up for university or whatever. And when that happens, I still, I'm like, I guess that means you can fly over here, spend all that money, but the money you make here is more valuable than what you can make in your own country. So my head always goes to that, like where you went, the, the um, economics of it. And I, I guess that's what I was getting at with like wondering about the Philippines and what is the job market like, right? Like you hear all the time about some Latin American countries where there is no middle class. It's just mm. poverty or it's just like elite, you know, there, yeah. there's, there's not that happy like teacher lifestyle where you're comfortable, where you can be yeah. a nurse and, you know, you're comfortable, you're enjoying life. Um, so I, that's where I was kind of wondering about. Um, yeah, in, never... in the Philippines, we have a growing um, middle class now, which is absolutely fantastic to see. Um, it's going to take a bit of time to actually um, 
you know, uh, I don't know if it's absolutely um, possible to eliminate total poverty. I think there there will always be um, pockets of poverty anywhere you go, you know, right. even here um, in the UK. And, and I have to say, you know, when it comes to, to social division and, and, and social inequality, I could actually say that there are some Western countries that are experiencing worse um, social inequality than, than what I have seen um, in the Philippines. Because for us in the Philippines, okay, there are people who are poor, there are people who are rich, and we have the middle class. But we have this um, sense of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, we help each other. Community. You know, there is a sense of community yeah. um, in the Philippines. Um, well, it's got to help that it's an island, right? Or islands. Islands. You know, it's actually an archipelago. We have 7,000 islands um, there. So it's, uh, yeah, a lot of islands over there. But it's, yeah, uh, yeah we have we do have a sense of, of community. You know, family is really important. And, you know, our identity is actually not a very individualistic um, identity. But we, we do have, um, we do identify ourselves, you know, with our community, with our neighbors, with our friends. And, you know, it's really important that, if you are, you know, if you find that someone is in need, we actually do help each other, you know, in times of, we get hit a lot by natural disasters, you know, typhoons, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, you name it. You know, we are in the ring of fire, you know, in the <laughs> Pacific, you know, we are prone to, to natural disasters. But when disaster strikes, you know, you have this um, sense of um, community, this sense of camaraderie, and even if you are rich, poor, whatever, no people are gonna be there um to help you out. So you know right. I that that's something that I quite admire about um you know Filipinos. It's it's this sense of community and um you know we do help each other when you know particularly in times of need. Right. Yeah. And I think that's um and I don't know if it's a psychological thing or not, but like when you are on an island, and I guess everything kind of is an island, right? Because we're all surrounded by water. But mm. yeah. <laughs> um like but when you're on those islands, it, it's that the feeling I've always thought of like isolation. And if there's other people here, it's just us. Like there's mm. no thing coming for us because we're alone. We're surrounded by water kind of a thing. And I feel like that can be very binding for relationships. It's right. It creates yeah. like a sense of interdependence. I, I, I have to say though, that I, I didn't actually grow up in, in those small islands. I, I grew up in, in Manila and that didn't really have a very islandy feel. Oh, no? Um it, it was the you know, we, we lived in Luzon, that's like the biggest island um in the Philippines, and we have like millions of people, you know, um in that island. It's it's just so densely populated, it's so crowded, it's so polluted as well. Aww. Um, so it doesn't really have that island feel. Um gotcha. I didn't grow up in the provinces like what you were mentioning. Um you know, uh, in those islands, but I visited those islands, and yeah, you, you you do have that sense of yeah, we are in this together, we support each other. The downside there is that everybody knows everybody's business, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, the gossip is just yeah, who's sleeping with who, how did he get to, you know what I mean? It's uh, right. you know, the 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 stories that that float in in these communities, everybody knows everybody's business, but um. You know, to, to visit, you know, the, our islands are just absolutely beautiful. They're, you know, they're wonderful to visit. You know, we are very rich um, in our natural resources, you know, really clean um, beaches. And um, uh, there are some very crowded beaches, but the ones that are still relatively untouched by tourists, you know, they're just absolutely gorgeous. 
Got you, got you. Yeah, okay. Then that that makes sense. Again, showing my ignorance. I um, I had not thought about it in that way. Oh yeah, Manila. Oh my goodness. If you go to Manila, it's just so crowded. You know, it's just so densely populated. And yeah, a, a lot of people they 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 conjugate in, in Manila because yeah, that's where the businesses, you know, are based. That's you know, that's where the you know, that's where trading happens, or you know, the, the jobs are there. But yeah, if you go to the provinces, if you go to the islands, you know, it's just absolutely beautiful. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I'll have to take a trip. That'll be on my bucket list. I'll go get my awesome. um, second second graduate degree in the Philippines. <laughs> yeah, you know, watch out for Palawan. You know, Palawan is a really nice um island to visit. Okay. Yeah, I was because everybody goes to Boracay for some reason. You oh. know, that's like all the tourists they go to Boracay, but you know, Palawan is just beautiful, and you know, we do have seven thousand islands. So I had no you know, idea. Bur- God. Yeah, Boracay is not the only one to to visit in the Philippines. Look at that. Look at that. I'm growing. I'm learning and growing every day. Thank you for that. Well, yeah. Well, well, that's the beauty of uh, having these conversations, right? You get to meet so many people and have these conversations and you learn. We've talked about so many things. Yeah. No. Yeah. And it's funny because like a part of me, like when I'm, I also try to do like notes as I'm talking just to help me organize for the editing and the posting and whatnot. But like, you'll look down and you'll be like, I don't know if there's a, it's almost like I picture when you're looking at those photographs, you're like, what is the common theme? How do I group mm-hmm. this? How do I even describe what you're bouncing around talking about, you know? Mm. Um, and, but then that's at the same time, like I'll look down and I'll forget to write because I'm just talking and I'm like, Oh shit, it's been 20 minutes. Like <laughs> now, really... now I'm going to have to edit and like really, really spend a lot of time. Um, mm. Yeah. Those, those are my problems. First world problems. <laughs> well, um, for me as a, you know, as an academic, I, as, as I've mentioned earlier, I, I've done a lot of uh, community-based work, a lot of qualitative research as well. And we do, we do what you call in thematic analysis, like just trying to make sense of all the stories, right. you know, trying to make sense of, you know, what are the common themes and how do you connect these themes? I love it. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's quite fun um, to do that. And and when you really immerse yourself in the data, when you immerse yourself in the story, um, there are things that you will just skim through in the conversation. But when you are immersed, you will see details that you haven't seen, you know, the first time you've heard it. And and then you go through it second time, third time, fourth. You know, you right. you you find new things and you learn new things, and you know, it's um, it's wonderful. Um, but for me, I I suppose thematic analysis is one of the things that I did as an academic. Um, but one of the other ways that I analyze it, I don't know if you've heard about discourse analysis before. I have not. Um, it's it's a type of um qualitative analysis where you you interview someone. Um, but instead of looking at the themes, you actually look at the specific words that they are using oh. and you ask, why are they using these words? What are the connotations of these words? What is the purpose of using these particular words um, to, to make an impact? So for me, when I, when I did my master's you know, in, in health psychology, I did a discourse analysis of some law on child labor. And I was analyzing the words, you know, that they were using. I wasn't necessarily analyzing what they were saying. Mm -hmm. I was analyzing the words that they were using and what they are trying to achieve 
by using specific words. Man, so I, I love doing that. You know, when when you when you listen to speeches of politicians, for example, oh, yeah, that's you know, so you true. analyze the discourse. It's like, why is he using that word? You know, why is he repeating that word all the time? Or even the way they 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 talk, you know, if yeah. if they are presenting it from a, for example, a scientific discourse, you know, you do you want to present yourself as an expert, or if you are presenting yourself as a as an authority, you know, you are um you know you're using a more uh paternalistic you know uh, discourse, you know, there are certain ways that you can you can present the same content but having different ways of you know talking about it. So I think. Yeah, for you at the moment, you're looking at the themes in your interviews, but you know, at some point, you might find it interesting to look at the discourses as well, like what sort of words people are using and how they are framing things and how they are phrasing, how are they positioning themselves, and what's the agenda? You know, why are they presenting the content in this particular way? And oh you know, for me, I I was absolutely you know when I was doing my masters, and that's also one of my specialist areas you know when i was an academic it's just not looking at what people say it's looking at how they said it and why they said it in that way mm. man that um yeah well this might be a treasure trove of analysis for someone like you then on this podcast getting all these people from all over and then it, like it would be interesting if you were able to group particular like if i had a professor from some other country to, that did like same kind of job, same kind of field as you to see what are similarities and what are differences based on the education and where they've received it. You know? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like that stuff, and it would be very neat. For, for some of my students, um, when I was supervising their projects, you know, uh, you know, some students, you know, especially the ones who are very curious, um, this course analysis is not easy because you're actually looking deeper. You're not looking at what is being said, but right. you're looking at how they are saying it. And there are, you know, they've done some work, you know, looking at blogs, for example, looking at forums, how we talk about race, you know, how we talk about gender, how we talk about diversity and the way people frame and the way they talk about this, these topics, it, it's, it's quite fascinating um, to see how, how they would use and, and play with words rather than focusing on what is being said and, and rather focus on how it is being said. It's, it's really you, fascinating how you control the power, how you control the conversation based simply based on the words that, that you are using in, in that conversation. So is that it? Is the point of doing that? And I don't know if there is just one point, but the point of doing that to analyze like manipulation, persuasion, um, to find like biases. Well, that's one way. So a lot of, um, for example, political psychologists, uh, they would analyze political speeches. They will analyze uh, media content. And for me, you know, at the start of my career, I was um, analyzing um, policy and law, you know, international law, you know, just to look at how um, certain um people are being uh, positioned you know through the way the, through the way you talk about them you know through the way that you frame um, topics so, so looking at biases looking no, at um, you know persuasion is one way is one reason why you know people do this course analysis but I have a, a former colleague she's done some work um, exploring um, you know she was doing a conversation analysis of people making phone calls for 
abuse hotlines like child abuse hotlines oh, wow. and they they um they do the discourse analysis to help train um the the call handlers to spot you know how, how to how to navigate the conversation oh. so you can actually get into the root of the problem so it's not just about persuasion but it's actually looking for practical ways um to make um you know to to, to make the conversation um, uh, helpful, you know, right. and in, in, in that case, you know, she was analyzing um, uh, recorded conversations on, on a child abuse helplines. And it's just fascinating because the impact on, you know, how, how it's going to inform the training of the call handlers, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I didn't, again, didn't even think of that. But yeah, how helpful to know how mm -hmm. to almost, it's almost like a translator, right? Or you know, you know what word to say to help people who are experiencing something that you haven't to like impact them to get them. Absolutely, um, to because the with, with discourse analysis, um, it, it's based on the premise that language is a tool. You know, language is something that um, that will help us to construct reality. So the, the words that you use, how you use it, can actually impact on the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we interact. And that's, you know, that's, that's absolutely true. You know, you, you might say that this is a table. You know, I'm pointing at the table right now. I would say this is a table. It is a table because I say and I label it as a table. But if I say this is a chair and, 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 and if we accept that word to refer to it as a chair, then the table becomes a chair, if that makes any sense. <laughs> or not really <laughs> no yeah yeah for sure and but then sometimes you're like why are you sitting on this table and it's like well because it's a chair <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely so your language can you know you're we, we we are basing it on the premise that language is the the tool that we use to construct reality right. if you don't have the language you 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 cannot actually construct it and if you want to understand reality you have to deconstruct the the very tool that you use to make it so that's uh yeah so yeah i love discourse analysis i do miss discourse analysis and whenever i watch like debates and oh my goodness when i was watching the the brexit debates here a couple of years ago like my discourse analytic head was just going crazy because i can spot all of the strategies that they are using to, to frame certain issues in a certain way, you know, to, right. to strike fear, you know, to strike anger and, you know, to persuade people to behave in a certain way because they are using the power of language to, to create and, and, you know, to, to represent reality in a certain way. Yeah. That, um, and I forget, I might've been two years ago. I thought Netflix had a movie about Vertex and it was, um, man, whoever that, ah, God, I'm not even going to be able to communicate this thing well enough to make it make sense. But basically the movie, this dude is just sitting there figuring out how to word things to get Britain to turn the way he wants the population to turn. Mm. And he's just sitting there listening to how people speak and seeing how they react when he says particular things. Yeah. And it was a huge social experiment and apparently it fucking worked. And I was like, oh my God, that's how yeah. things get it's done powerful. in laws. Yeah, it's yeah. wickedly and you feel manipulated after watching it because you're like, is it really what you're saying or is it you are you saying specific things 
to, to manipulate and, and to control your behavior. And yeah. then I have to say, one of the debates that, that we had in psychology in the 1970s is that we had this debate around free will. Um, we were debating whether we actually have free will or whether we are just responding to a series of manipulations wow. um, to modify our behavior. You know, everything that we do is just a conditioned response. So my training, you know, my background is actually with B.F. Skinner. He's a behaviorist, and he would argue that all of our behaviors are, you know, it's it's a result of us responding to to stimuli. You you might think that you are um, exercising your free will, you're exercising freedom, but your behavior is actually preconditioned. You know, it's been, um, you know, it's been tested and trialed on 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 many uh on many occasions and in the behavior that you think is free is actually not because yeah you've just been through a series of um manipulated you know stimuli or words or whatever it is that you use to to manipulate the behavior and free will is really just an illusion so yeah we we had that debate in the 1970s um we still have that debate um, in this day and age. You know, people don't really want to accept that they haven't got free will. Um, but I don't know. What do you think about that, Sean? You know, do you have free will or is everything just a, a, a preconditioned response? You know, you're just responding to to stimuli. Yeah, I don't. W- would you say that your preconditioned response is like a biological response? My, my, my head, I, I feel like there's way... I contextually, I would need situations Mm. to respond, you know, because I would uh, initially it's like, yeah, you have a choice, but then maybe you also have a conscience. So does your conscience, would you take that as part of free will or is your conscience actually responding? Well, it's it's, it's possible that that, your conscience is also just built from, from the series of other preconditioned, um, you know, uh, you know, you, you learn, you learn to behave in a certain way, you know, from a, from a, well, from an early age. That's you know, where I was were, going with like environmental yeah, you influences. You were taught what's right, what's wrong. You know, some behaviors are um, some behaviors are reinforced and other behaviors are repressed. And right. you know, the repressed behaviors, um, you learn that. You learn to repress that. So everything that that we do now, these are just behaviors that we learned are acceptable or unacceptable right. and of obviously there will be complications because you know there are different variations in the you know in the conditions that we experienced but you know what skinner would argue is that um we behave differently in you know in different um circumstances because the conditioning that we received was um you know they, they were different but if you, for example, uh, if if you get put in a in a context and have it controlled for the next three months, you know he can predict how you're going to to respond, um, you know, with with a particular stimuli because he can he can train you like a pigeon, you know, yeah. he will train you like a lab rat, and and all your all your responses are just based on the series of manipulations that that he's created. Yeah, so, does that make sense? No, no, yeah, it does because I think you can create an environment to induce, most likely, choices, right? But then I guess it would uh, my mind. So, and I forget you may have said it, I'm not sure, but for some reason I thought of a person on an elevator who needs to fart, and like, why do you not fart? 
right? Mm. <laughs> like because you've been you don't preconditioned. Wanna, yeah, that, that's not acceptable. People, right, but at the same time, there are people who will fart because they're just jerks or they think it'll be funny or whatever, right? <laughs> Someone else will take the blame. Yeah, right. And then then like you'll fart and then you'll like start looking at someone and be like, oh my god, you know, like whoever smelt it dealt it, um, kind of a thing. But like. Isn't that the free will in the choice of I'm going to choose to act as I should, but I could, if I wanted to, whatever, yeah. not care about but, social But what norms. you're forgetting is that that's not the only time that you've been pre there are other um there are other points in your life that determine how you're going to respond. If, that's, if that makes any sense. So yeah. there are many other layers right. that makes your behavior different from from someone else so with skinner if if he, he if he's able to identify all of the factors that that can predict whether you're gonna fart or not you know he, he will be able to, yeah. to predict based on the you know your exposure to to all sorts of preconditioning oh, yeah, in your past right? like if you went to sunday school you're not a farter right like <laughs> if if your parents are anarchists you're a farter if your father was a comic right if he was a crude comic no so like i you could totally i mean i yeah i would i would 100% but that gets into the um nature nurture environmental That's right, right influence right that you that you try to figure out the whole like if you took twins and put them in different environments would they be the exact same way and would they want have the same um desires goals would they value the same things right because yeah well with with skinner he would factor in the biological so in terms of his prediction on, on how you're going to react he would factor in oh there um, is a bio biological factor like you just think innately on a, like some cellular genetic level you are more likely to blank if you are asking me um i'm still torn to be honest, because there are there are things that that are um, that that the, the way your brain works, there are there there's something quite innate in it that predisposes you um, to to react in a certain way. But on the other hand, you know the nurture component when you are again when you when you unlearn certain things that might that might have been considered innate in you. You can unlearn and and what we call in in um in psychology, in neuropsychology, we have what you call neuroplasticity. You can actually retrain your brain. So, you know, there is this, yeah, you you would say nature, nurture, um, but then again we also have neuroplasticity where the, you know, the environment can actually um change the way your your brain operates. So it's still it's it's really quite complicated. And if you're asking me for a, a straight answer, for a straight answer, I, I couldn't give you one. Yeah, you theorists. But what that, what I can say though is do. that I'm I'm heavily influenced by Skinner. And for me, if you want to make a, a lasting change, sure you can change your own thinking. You can have you know as a psychologist, you know someone who who teaches people, for example, at an individual level, how to build their confidence, how to you know how to improve their their self-worth and so on there are certain things that you can do on an individual level and you know retrain you know and, and, and exercise quote unquote their their free will and empower them to 
to um to exercise their free will but on the other hand you know my background as a as a skinnerian you know someone who, <laughs> who who believes in in the power of you know the environment and again as a as a community psychologist you know the power of of, of hierarchies and the environment and the community mm. the way you behave is actually dependent on on how you know on your exposure you know on on who you relate with, you know, the opportunities that you have in your community, you know, the barriers, if you actually want to exercise your right, you know, your if you want to exercise your free will, but the environment doesn't let you, eventually you'll be like that dog that we were talking about earlier right. was being electrocuted. You know, you'll you'll eventually learn to 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 become helpless. So there is this power in the environment. There's only so much that you can do as an individual. But on the other hand, as an individual, there's only there's also so much that you can do to influence your environment. So it you know for me it goes back and forth. You know you need to actually have a good um, uh, sustainable environment, a supportive environment right. that that enables individuals to flourish. But it actually also takes individuals to create that environment um, where where people enough. can actually exercise quote unquote their free Free. will quote unquote yeah well and it's funny because i'm I'm just thinking of acceptance right and why and for i went and i think it was actually i think i'm posting his podcast in the next two days dan Mm. who is a contestant on naked and afraid he lives in hawaii and just casually like i i was again the whole like pre-facebook instagram stalking my man hits hits me just casually with a yeah me and my husband and I was like, whoa. And I, I didn't say anything at first. And he brought it up two or three more times. And I'm like, dude, I got to say, it's amazing that you can just be like me and my husband. And it's natural because mm-hmm. it wasn't always like that. Like me growing up, you know, I'm almost 40. You know, mm-hmm. that that was a very hard, hard fought right for homosexuals to feel like it's okay if people know I'm a homosexual. Yes. And we got into that a little bit. And then when you're talking about this environment allowing for acceptance, that, that's immediately where my mind goes because individuals had to challenge and almost push back those barriers, which is scary as hell. That's you know? right. That's like, right. I mean, that that that's it. That's where to me the the empathy comes in and understanding behind all these theories. When you can put people or cases to it, they're so much more powerful because you're like, God, how brave were you? Right. It just helps mm-hmm. to understand how hard that is to change an environment as individuals who. Are constantly being beat back by that environment yeah and and i have to say and from my experience i tried um you know i i eventually ended up leaving the environment that i was in because it felt as if i was hitting myself on a brick wall right and you know it, it wasn't my time you know and and the 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 problem was bigger than me i will end up hurting myself and hurting my family if I if I stayed in that environment so that's why I say there's only so much that you as an individual can do as far as um 
starting a movement, for example, or you know, just driving change in that environment, um, I didn't feel that I had the energy um, to actually pursue that. So I ended up leaving, you know, to actually save my own sanity because as as we've talked about today, I was on the brink yeah. of actually, you know, I lost my mind on the brink of actually taking my own life. And I really wouldn't want to, to do that to my family. And, you know, I've made that choice. Um, to 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 get out of that environment and i i say choice you know i i actually um implying that i exercised my free will you did um, but from you a skinnerian point of view <laughs> i've been preconditioned um to to exercise that you know to to actually have to make you need to make me really really angry um for me to do that thing if that makes any sense so even if it looks as if i had the choice it's almost as if you left me no choice but to do that. Does that make sense? <laughs> it's, uh, it, the, when, um, it, it's funny because I hadn't been in like college classes in a while and I'm like going back to college classes. And like the one, philosophy is like all these right? philosophy professors going round and round. And yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Bad. And you speak in like, um, not you, but the, they would like speak in the generalities and you're just trying to almost like decode it. And like, you're like, Oh, I don't know. Maybe I'm conditioned to want like specific answers. And you're like, where, where's the, spe- it's a, the correct answer is a, and it's like, well, was a the correct answer because it was on top or was a the correct answer because you were led to it or was a the correct answer because you glanced at someone's paper and you thought if they answered it that quickly, it had to be the first answer that they read to. And why are you even reading a the first way? And and then like, you just go down these route and you're like, Oh my God, my mind just like explodes. Explode, like just over, you know, over um, analyzing things. Yeah. But yeah, this is what this is what academics do, and right. I, you know, I, I I do miss these um conversations when you have all these um, uh, you know, you ponder on things and then yeah. you, you 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 try to analyze them. But again, you know, that might be one of the reasons why I left it as well because it, it, there's so much talk. Yeah, no, that's a good point. <laughs> get no, on no. with it and, and do what we have to do but obviously we, we need acad- I, you know, I'm not really dissing um, academics we do need academics we oh, need yeah. thinkers we need to to be able to pause and reflect and, and, and analyze sometimes over analyze uh, things and, and have these conversations for me I, I would rather have them occasionally rather yeah. than have it as part of my career oh Jesus because, if it was um, like Monday morning you know, 9 o'clock I just know we're going to have to go into this for 3 hours and that was like, oh, then lunch. And then, yep, hey, we're doing it again at 1230. Like yeah. that would wear you out. And then guess what? Tuesday, same thing. Let's go. Oh. <laughs> and then, so, then you want to yeah. go to a dinner party and a cocktail party and talk about this too? No, I'm done talking. Can we go play baseball? <laughs> can we Can we go to the trampoline park, please? <laughs> you know, just yeah, just you know, just get on with it. And yeah, for me, I you know, with, with with my background as a as a community psychologist, and now that I'm an entrepreneur, um, you know, having to to work for myself, I need to get things done. And um, yeah, I I just love seeing outcomes. You know, getting the yeah. results. You know, for my students, for example, you know, those who are writing their own books. You know, I I teach them how to write and self publish and launch their books on Amazon. When I see them get real tangible results, um, and when I see them get there, you know, it gives me great pleasure. Whereas, you know, as an academic, you know, we keep, you know, thinking about all these, um, 
you know, we, we debate about a lot of things and we talk about these things for 10, 20 years, you know, for decades yeah. and not really get anywhere. Um, you know, we, we keep going round and round. Obviously, yeah, we, we do need to have these conversations. But for me, I, I actually love seeing real concrete, concrete results. Yeah. And, and that's why I absolutely love um, where I am right now. Yeah, that's because, I mean, look at it. You just brought up Skinner from the 70s, right? And there's no, yeah. defend, like, that's 50 fucking years. Where's the answer? Uh, <laughs> right? well, there, like, there's I mean, really no answer. It's, exactly. it's, it's just a conversation. It's a exactly. debate. I don't think that... I don't think that it's ever going to be resolved because no. everyone will have um, different perspectives on that. And even if you say that it is, it's meant to be scientific, it's meant to be evidence-based, right. you know, people will always find different ways and present different, you know, evidence in, in different ways. And again, you know, coming back to our discussion around discourse, you may be looking at the same thing. Oh, but yeah. the way you describe this thing, you know, you may be looking at the same set of data, but the way you talk about data and the way you present the data will have a profound, um, you know, implication on, on how how it's going to be used, how it's going to be perceived, you know, oh, what yeah. are going, but it's exactly the same thing. Yeah. I so, find... you know, it, it, it could be a hammer, for example, you have a hammer, it's a tool, you can use it to to build something or kill someone. So, yeah, I know, that's a good you point. know, it's, yeah. So it, I, I think that's, yeah, right that's there. the same with science. You have the yeah. same data, you have the same evidence, you, you know, you're not going to have um, a, a resolution with, with this debate because people will have evidence and they'll look at evidence in, in different ways. Yeah. I um, Weapon, weapon or tool. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. that's right. It's just something that easy. Um, all right. Let me do this, Emmy, because that's enough academic talk. Although okay. I really enjoyed it because it's almost like an academic sandwich where <laughs> it was like super big on thoughts beginning and end. But mm. I end my podcast with this. So in your head, get ready to tell a story. Can okay. I please get your best first for last? We've saved the best first for last. Sponsored by Abstinence. Waiting makes it worthwhile. Ooh, my best first or that. What does, what does that mean, Sean? No, it means how, whatever you want it to mean. No, I'm just kidding. Ah. Um, so um, best for last, you know, the saying like you save dessert, it's the best for last. So since it's the getting to know you pod, a best first experience for you will be the last thing on your podcast all right okay the best first thing um for the last you know in this podcast is the first time i gave birth <laughs> you know it's you know it's 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 my firstborn son um it's an experience that you know i found a a, a new respect um for women um, who've been carrying, you know, babies in their womb for so long and having to push that baby out <laughs> of a tiny hole. Um, you know, it's a, uh, you know, it is painful. Um, but it's it's the best experience for me, um, because it it gave me um, uh, you know, a, a sense of yeah, it's it's birthing new life. It's um. And it's an extension of, of my life. It's an extension of, of myself that it's not just me anymore. I have this another soul, another human being that is actually connected with me as well. And, you know, that's for me the best thing that has ha that has ever happened to me, the best experience that I've ever had. And I think that's, um, you know, that's the last um, 
experience that I'm going to share um, in this podcast with you today. <laughs> How would, would you like relatively speaking? Cause yeah, putting, I don't know. You just think of the size of children and the size of a hole and you're like, it just doesn't make sense. Right. Like it should not, should not physically be able to happen. I don't care how lubed up you are. Like it shouldn't happen, but was your birth relatively easy? Was it hours on hours? Um, hmm. I think my my labor started at around, uh, I woke up at like 3, 3.30 in the morning. And I gave birth to my son at 9 uh, in the evening. Oh, 9.30. 9.20 oh, to wow. be exact, actually. Um, 9.27 to be exact <laughs> in the evening. Um, so it, it was... For a first time, um, for 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 the first time birth, it's it's not as bad, you know. Then you know when when I when I hear of other um, mothers uh, being in labor for 48 hours, for example, um, I would say on a scale of zero to ten, with zero pe- being painless, and ten being excruciating, like end of the world kind of pain. Um, the pain that I, that I experienced on childbirth was around four. Oh, you know, wow. it wasn't it wasn't like the kind of pain that I saw on movies. You know, on, on TV where the women are screaming and you know just absolutely, you know, um, you know just in absolute pain. For yeah, me, my agony. my level of pain was uh was a level four. I think I was able to to manage and just focus on my breathing. Um, uh, again, I think, you know, because of my background in psychology and as a health psychologist, um, I, I learned about um, pain management and te- techniques using hypnosis. Huh. So I, I was practicing hypnobirthing, you know, I was just um, just letting the pain melt away. So I was at home from four, four, in, the af- four in the morning until around noon. Um, without any pain relief. Um, and by the time we got to the hospital, I was already seven centimeters dilated. So, you know, it's, you know, I was pretty much open um, by that time. <laughs> um, you know, I just really couldn't take it anymore. So, um, yeah, my, my level of pain, you know, when I was giving birth was a level four. My um, husband wouldn't believe it because when he, he said when he looked into, you know, when he was watching me, he could see the pain. Right. But I wasn't making any noise. You know, I wasn't <laughs> I, because I was just concentrating on my breathing. You know, Hypno. I was just. I, yeah, I've not I, heard of hypno breathing before. Like you're almost yeah, like putting yourself it's, it's, in a trance like state, huh? Yeah, that's right. You know, it's it's called hypnobirthing. Oh, I'm sorry. So birthing. it's um yeah, it's you're you're just putting yourself in 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 a more like hypnotic state that you just concentrate on. Yeah, you you acknowledge the pain is there. You 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 embrace the pain. You you know that it's there, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah, sure, big deal. Pain. Yeah, <laughs> you, you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> And the thing is with with birth with my experience of birth as well I will have contractions I would feel the pain I would embrace it I would say okay ouch <laughs> but yeah it's going to pass so I'm not really tensing myself that's like oh my goodness this is so painful because when you think of the pain you actually magnify the pain right so for me I just let it it was like yeah sure pain ow but it's going to pass in in a couple of seconds Um, and then I, it will pass because that's how contractions work. And then it will come again uh, a couple of seconds later. So you will have breaks. And for me, I find um, 
the relief that it is going to be painful a few seconds a few seconds later it's going to be gone mm-hmm. it will come again later but a few seconds later it's going to be gone so i just was going into that wave in out in out and you know after a couple of hours my son was born <laughs> after a couple of hours of riding that wave God. <laughs> just riding that wave yeah and, oh. and you know he was born but yeah on a scale of zero to ten it was a it was a four it 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 was like you need to go to the toilet <laughs> let, let, let me let me put it that way it felt like that a little bit more intense because it's prolonged right but yeah it, it for me it felt that way um because you know when you have to go to the toilet you just go <laughs> you know you just okay it's, it's gonna if you need to go you go with with childbirth you know it's gonna take a bit longer and it's yeah. it's quite uncomfortable yeah it's like holding that fart on the elevator and now the elevator <laughs> the elevator is stuck and it's like how long can i just resist the urge <laughs> Right, but oh yeah, God. I but yeah, after I, I I gave birth, yeah, a lot of things um changed in my life. You know, I did have my identity crisis. I did have my meltdown, but it also led to to me rebirthing myself almost. Um, you know, to be in academia for twenty years and and after the birth of my son, you know, it it actually forced me to to go out and and explore other things outside of academia, and I just feel that. I missed a lot of opportunities to learn and grow because I've been in my comfort zone for so long. Mm. And after the birth of my son, I feel, um, you know, this renewed sense of life, this new, um, you know, I, I can see a lot of uh, opportunities for growth and development. And it all started when, when my son was born. Oh, that's awesome. It, it that, That's awesome. And I, 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 I feel like it's awesome when kids do what they almost not were meant to do, but they do just what you described there, mm. you know, where they just almost re-inspire, reinvigorate their parents to keep, to keep exploring, to keep expanding, to keep challenging themselves. Right. Like that's, yeah. that, that's absolutely. Awesome and and I have to say, I, I, I don't, um, so for, for, for parents who, who are listening to this and you don't feel this way right now, you know, you're, you, you feel as if, Oh goodness, I'm a parent. It's just it's so difficult Yeah, because for me. It, it is, it yeah. is difficult. And, and for me, I had to go through, um, so much psychological pain. And, and I, I, I did tell my husband, you know, as far as the pain goes, childbirth was the easy part. You know, it was actually the, the thing after childbirth that, that, I, that I experienced a different level of pain because that pain is invisible. Right. You know, you couldn't really find it, you know, from a, from a physical perspective, although it manifested in, into physical symptoms later on because, you know, your body is keeping score. You know, it's, it's um, you know, if you're experiencing so much distress and you're um, devaluing yourself and you're, you're talking your, yourself out of, you know, you're, you're essentially, um, uh, abusing yourself almost your body is going to catch up so i did experience um you know physical symptoms um that that manifested into pain later on as well but for me yeah the childbirth was the easy part the the difficulty and in the the transitioning for me you know to to be where i am now that happened later 
And right. the, and for me, that happened years later. It wasn't overnight. Yeah. And for me, when I gave birth to my son, it wasn't love at first sight. You know, <laughs> I wasn't, you know, I didn't see this um gross, you know, filled with liquidy they things. They do look and so weird. Things. Yeah, you know, you know, newborns, yeah, they, they look weird. They you are. know, it wasn't it wasn't love at first sight, but it's um you know, it develops over time. And for me, I really did need to go through a process of healing to have this renewed appreciation for life. It did take me a bit of time. And certainly my story could have ended in tragedy, um, you know, if I went the other way. Um, fortunately, you know, I've been blessed that I, I've, I've managed to to live and, and, and tell this tale, you know, to survive, you know, that pain and that trauma. Um, but it could have gone uh, in a different way. So if you are a parent and if you are in a position where, you know, you feel it's, you know, really dark times, it's really difficult. It is. It is difficult. Um, but you need to understand that, you know, you can actually reach out, seek for help. You know, you don't have to go through this on your own. And for me, um, the way that I recovered is recognizing that, um, you know, I do need help. I, you know, I'm a social being and I need to reach out to others and, and seek for help. And, and that's a mm. really good way to, to, to grow and, and heal, you know, from the trauma that you've experienced as well. That's a great point. That's a, uh, yeah. I, and I didn't mean to make, um, I don't know. I wasn't thinking about in making a light, but then you bring it up that there, there is those years are so hard, especially initially, because there's just so much change that's occurring mm. um, that you can feel very overwhelmed. But then when you get through it, your kid just gives you such a renewed sense of I'm doing this for this person, which is yeah, so absolutely. It, it's not just about you anymore, Yeah, which is so and yeah, you, you have to let go of your of your ego and, and your self-centeredness and recognizing that, yeah, it's not just about you anymore. There's this other human being who's looking at you. And, and for me, at, at the time when I was um so messed up, he was also the the person that reminded me like, yeah, if, if you if you ended up, if your story ended up in tragedy, the one who will suffer is it's not the ones who hurt you. It's actually the the innocent one who's who will have to to live through the through the trauma of of losing his mother um, in in such a tragic way. Now, are you encouraging people to let go of their ego based on their free will, or based on <laughs> the fact that they've been conditioned to let go of their ego? <laughs> Uh, that, that's a hard question. Again, yeah, with, with this thing about free will and, you know, this, this question about precondition, I think it is quite um, comforting. It is quite comforting to, to, to think that you have the free will. But um, if I'm going to look at it from a Skinnerian point of view, just think of it in this way that there are some, there are other occasions in your life where you were able to take control of difficult situations. You've been preconditioned to handle difficult things in your life, and you've been preconditioned to take control of difficult circumstances. So, you know, why not to take that conditioning that's been ingrained <laughs> in you for so long and exercise that ability to, to behave in a certain way, to take yourself out of um, difficult situations. Because, yeah, if you've done it before, there's no reason why you can't do it again. There it is. And, man, that, I, 
I like how you always get back to the Skinnerian thing. I just picture, I just picture <laughs> like the, this. in me is so strong, right? in case you haven't noticed. Like this <laughs> academic gang fight. And like you go to the cafeteria and there's like the Skinnerian section. You <laughs> know, Skinnerians and then there's like the fucking, the free you know willers what? over there. Like, Jesus, why are they walking over here? You know, and you're just giving them a stank <laughs> eye. <laughs> like. The Skinnerians and, and those who actually one of my um dearest friends here um here in the UK she she was actually uh well her her partner passed away already but her partner was the one who debated with Skinner um in oh, the wow. 1970s so um Mackay you know he had a um a televised debate with Skinner Mackay versus Skinner and Skinner is the condition you know we have no free will and Mackay is the you know we have free will we have he's a christian and you know it's it's by god's grace that that we can um exercise our free will and interestingly enough even if makai is a an advocate of you know free will and he's a you know he's a christian and so on he's a neuroscientist right you know he's a pioneer in his own field so i'm actually really good close friends um with with his wife she's 85 now um but uh i have their um their debate on on vhs (laughs) (laughs) yeah i have that debate on vhs and it's just absolutely fascinating to to see you know different you know two scientists um talking about um you know you know debating about free will and you know us being preconditioned and for me to to be Skinnerian and to to also be friends with the one who's um you know uh telling us that that we have free I would like to believe um that we have free will but um unfortunately from my Skinnerian background you know it's um it might be an illusion you know we might be under the illusion that we are um exercising our free will you know our environment is um you know, we are exposed in this environment and we respond to, to the environment in a certain way. If we are able to change the environment, you know, we can change behaviors and, you know, we can change the way people make choices and, and therefore modify their behavior um, by changing the environment. So I don't know. I, I'm sorry that, you know, it's uh, it, it's not a really uh, positive note, you know, to say that we don't have free will, but we have we are we are able to i suppose modify our environments so we can also modify um our behaviors and you know the way we the the way we interact with the environment you that the scenarian <laughs> soapbox is real oh my gosh you are man, you, the first one i've spoken to the first like into into skinner kind of a thing it's it it's interesting to me how it kind of comes back. And then, <laughs> I like, know there's it's, almost I know like it's a little old guilt. fashioned. And um, I do remember, um, you know, when, when we were studying, uh, you know, in, in my undergrad years, you know, from the history of psychology, um, there were some activists who were burning um, portraits of B.F. Skinner, um, you know, for this reason, you know, because it's like blasphemy. It God, is, yeah. um, you know, how could you say this? But when you when you understand that yeah the environment has an impact on on the way we behave that sometimes we actually 
don't have a choice. We have this illusion of choice. Yeah. But, you know, just some tweaks on, on the stimuli, the tweaks on the environment, the tweaks that we present our words and our interaction with others. Yeah. You know, this will have implications on the way people respond and implications on the behavior. So when you have that understanding, it can be quite powerful. And if you want it to be liberating, if you want to liberate um, others from you know, from from the quote-unquote bad choices that they are making, change the environment, you know, change the, 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 the stimuli, if you like, and, you know, it, it will be easier instead of trying to, to change their mind, you know, right. change the environment, you know, change, uh, that will change the way we interact with, with each other, it will change our behavior, it's just a more um, uh, sustainable and a more impactful way yeah, of, right. of well, creating change. I mean, yeah, you don't, you don't tell yourself to stop shivering. You put a coat on, Exactly. <laughs> you, tur- you turn, exactly you turn that. the temperature up, you know, like it's just, I, I, I don't think there's anything bad. It's just funny to me that sometimes I feel like you're feeling almost guilty about being a Skinnerian, maybe because I'm messing with you so much about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 I don't do. think there's any I guilt because about it, it's it or not, anything. It's not a popular, um, it's not a popular position. Huh. Um, and certainly, yeah, you know, people don't want to, you know, don't, don't want to, to be told that you have no free will, gotcha. that you are responding to, to the stimuli around you, which, yeah, from a Skinnerian point of view, that's what's happening. But again, yeah, as I've said, you still have the, you know, individuals have the power to change the stimuli. You have the power, yeah. you know, to change the circumstances, you know, which then will modify the behavior and which will then modify the choices that we make. I am going to end it there, Emmy, or else we will stay on this merry-go-round for a couple more hours. <laughs> well, thank it you was... very much for the opportunity. I cannot believe that we ended up, you know, talking three hours. You know, when, when you reached out to me and you said, oh, you know, my podcast usually goes for three hours. Like, what? Yeah, two like, to three. What do you talk about for three hours? Yeah, you know, some how of them... can you talk for three hours? But here we are, you know, two yeah. hours, 55 minutes and 30 seconds later. We're still here. Just shooting the shit, man. It, no, it's fun, yeah. but it's neat. It was um, and it was great getting to know you. Thank you so much for um being so open, telling your story, and um, just for me making me or having me like kind of reflect and think about some things that I hadn't really reflected and thought about behaviorally um in forever. I mean, it's just awesome. it, it's all it's great, great to have those kind of thought exercises. I so appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity, Sean. Thank you. All right, stay safe, and I'll talk to you later. And Bye. You too. Bye. Thanks to Emmy for taking time out of her day and coming on the Getting to Know You pod. Jesus, do I love it when I get to conversate with scholars and get smarter. Thanks to AndrePsyche.com for sponsoring today's pod. Um, Go to AndrePsyche.com for unique, one-of-a-kind merch that will not be found anywhere on the entire World Wide Web except for on AndrePsyche.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to the Getting to Know You pod on whatever application you just listened to it on. Also, the word of the pod is queek-queek. Yes, if you are familiar with Moby Dick, it is my favorite cannibal as well. Queek-queek is the word of the pod. Message or post that word on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, tag, mention, whatever the fuck it matters or how you do it, the Getting to Know You pod, you will get a personalized shout out and or maybe your own ad. 
on the next podcast. Thanks for listening. Adios.